How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 53 of X-Lapsed, and uh, I'm recording this in the dark. It's uh, it's Halloween night, and I don't want any of my neighbors to know that we're home, <laughs> because, uh, hey, there's a, I hear there's a virus out there, and I, I don't really want uh, a bunch of people around. So, uh, yeah, I'm hoping that uh, this, this recording session is not interrupted by a whole lot of doorbell rings, but, uh, yeah, hopefully the light's out outside a little... Uh, will, you know, protect me. Uh, but uh, enough about that. Today, we've got a book to talk about. It is Excalibur, Volume 4, Number 7. This had an April 2020 cover date. The story's called Verse 7, The Unspeakable and the Uneatable. Written by Teeny Howard, with pencils by Wilton Santos. Inks by Oren Jr. Colors Eric Arshanaga. Letters VCs Corey Petit. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sobolski, cover price, $3.99, and this one went on sale February 13th of 2020. And we open up straight away with a roll call, and uh, we got ourselves a, a pretty decent-sized cast today. It's uh, Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Shogo, Betsy Britton, Pete Wisdom, A, Jamie Braddock, and Exodus. And of course, this is followed by our customary double-page spread of creds. Finally open the comics content here with Richter manipulating some earth to open like a chasm or a pit, right? Betsy then tosses her beautiful brother Brian's blade into the abyss. Remember from last issue, he asked her to do so because uh, he was he was being mucked with in the head by Morgan Le Fay. And uh, when he was offered the, the sword of the amulet, he chose the sword. He ain't a fan of that, so he wants her to uh, rid him of the sword. Now, Rogue is there, and she wonders if it's truly wise to toss and bury the sword, but, uh, doesn't really put up too much of a fight. From here, Betsy decides to visit, uh, Otherworld. Alright, thankfully we're not gonna be here that long. And so Betsy steps through the now-functioning Krakoan Gateway to, is it Avalon or Camelot? Whatever this place is called. It's Otherworld. Uh, she approaches her uh, brother, the weirdo king, Jamie Braddock, on his otherworldly throne. And they have a pretty contentious chat, which is uh, ain't anything new to us. Uh, Betsy winds up hurling a psychic blade at Jamie's head, which he narrowly dodges before accusing his sister of attempted regicide. Regicide's kind of a funny word. It's a word that's, uh, it means a lot more to me these days, and it has nothing to do with attempted murder of royalty. Uh, my old partner Reggie. Uh, Reggie is short for uh, regicide. His, uh, you know, his his nom de, not not a nom de plume. I guess it is a nom de plume because he did do writing under Reggie as well. But uh, 
he heard the the word regicide as a child and uh, thought it was very funny. So uh, he started signing his name as regicide, which was shortened to Reggie. So uh, anytime I see regicide or hear the word regicide, I, I can't help but to uh, to get a little bit of a smile inside. Um, now, after expressing that she is here to see, Jamie literally pulls the rug out from under her. He vanishes the floor beneath her, and she falls down to the lab below. Now, she arrives and finds A hanging out with fellow Quiet Council member Exodus. Now, they talk about how Otherworld is now sort of kind of a part of Krakoa, because, you know, mutants can go there. So, uh, And all mutants right now can freely come and go via the portal, because, you know, uh, Betsy's wondering how Exodus got here and Apocalypse is like, or A is like, hey, the door's open and anybody can come in. Now, there's a bunch of glimmering sheets of uh, paper floating around the scene. It's almost like a mutant version of the Stephen J. Cannell Productions logo that used to sort of kind of creep me out as a kid. Now, these pages we come to find are A's grimoire, which he'd like to share with Betsy and the rest of mutant kind. He's uh, through keeping secrets, apparently, though uh, part of me doubts he's going to share what he has in mind for Morgan Le Fay, who he was... uh, he was kind of uh, dissecting her at the end of last issue. Now, A has a plan to create a multiversal beacon of sorts, a component that uh, I suppose might facilitate travel between dimensions. I don't know, but I suppose it stands to reason that uh, A would want to broaden the horizons of his kingdom and coven, or whatever it is. Here's the thing, though. He needs a special ingredient to make this component, and that ingredient is uh, some warwolf heads. Yeah, you remember the Warwolves from uh, the other Excalibur, the old Excalibur? Those shiny things. Uh, Now, Betsy is a bit incredulous, but she listens anyway. And we find out that there are actually five Warwolves in captivity at the London Zoo, which is a callback to a couple of old Excalibur stories, which, of course, I really appreciate. Now, outside the palace, Betsy meets up with Jubilee and Dragon Shogo, because Shogo is always a dragon in Otherworld. Uh, the latter of whom is busily eating dirt clods, and uh, gotta wonder what dirt clods might taste like in Otherworld. Probably boredom. Anywho, Jubilee would prefer that her son eat actual food, and she brandishes something that appears to be like a raw human leg. I think it's just a cut of meat, but it looks like a leg. Uh, Betsy tempts the beast to eat it by playing a bit of fetch, so she chucks it, the dragon goes, yada yada yada. Now, Jubilee complains that Shogo likes it so much better in Otherworld than he does in Krakoa. Uh, They wonder if that might be because he's, you know, human. Betsy suggests that they drop the tot with Megan so they can have a night out in London. Now, could you even imagine, like back in 1992 or whatever, that we'd see Psylocke and Jubilee hanging out? It almost doesn't compute to me. From here, we get an info page. And it's a page straight out of the grimoire. And it discusses the Warwolves. Which, you know, we're going to see the Warwolves in a bit. This is not the worst idea. Especially considering that this might be the first time some newer readers, if those do exist, are even hearing about these creatures, right? So I'm cool with this one. And that's news that I'm, I'm sure Teeny Howard is uh, wildly relieved to hear, right? Some goofball with a podcast thinks an idea was okay. So we resume, and we're at the London Zoo. Betsy and Jubilee are joined by Pete Wisdom, who is apparently anywhere you need him to be, so long as you're in the UK, Great Britain, and or England. Uh, Here's the thing, though. The Warwolves are gone. 
The zookeeper's there, and she ain't too keen on discussing the hows and whys of this, so uh, Jubilee decides to hack into the zoo's records with her iPhone. Because I suppose Jubilee is a hacker now? Uh, I mean, she does kind of have that look, doesn't she? You know, you remember all those mid-90s movies about hackers? Well, maybe it was just the one, but I feel like the girls in those movies all had the Jubilee-ish look to them. Anyway, Jubilee is able to get through and discerns that the werewolves didn't actually escape. Instead, they were bought and paid for. Pete suggests that now that they know what they know, they may as well stop for some drinks. And Jubilee is overjoyed at the idea of stopping for a sip. And I'm not sure what the legal drinking age is across the pond. And while I'm at it, do, do Brits like it when ignorant Americans use phrases like across the pond? I mean, it, it kind of annoys me to say it, so I wonder how it lands over there. Anyway, I'm not sure what the legal age is. A quick and dirty Google search says 18 is legal, and 16 is legal if you're accompanied by an adult. Maybe? I don't know. So when I first read this here, before I had the uh, had my, you know, search device with me here, I, I just, I was thinking like, oh man, did they really age Jubilee to being over 21? Which, you know, they still might have, but... uh. I, I, this is just a, you know, me getting caught in the scenery again. I, Jubilee will always be, you know, very young <laughs> in my eyes here. But, uh, what are you going to do? So, our trio heads to a nearby karaoke bar to throw back a pint or two. And it just so happens that we, li- we learn here that there's a method to uh, Pete Wisdom's suggestion. You see, on stage is the person that they're after. It's uh, one Cullen Bloodstone, who, if I'm not mistaken, I only know from uh, one of the most surprising Marvel Now-era books, uh, Avengers Arena. A book that uh, really had no reason to be as good as it was, but it was it was actually very, very good. Um, for those unaware, Avengers Arena was sort of, kind of, a riff on Battle Royale. Uh, I, though I suppose there's probably not much sort of, kind of, about it. <laughs> it was basically Battle Royale. Down to the logo. Um, the story was that there were like 15 or 20 team heroes. They were all kidnapped by Arcade and uh, brought to Murder World where they had to fight to the death. So it was going to be, you know, 15 or 20 in. The last person standing was the one that was going to live. I don't think any of these characters actually stayed dead because, I mean, it is what it is, but what are you going to do? So anyway, Cullen is here and he sits down with our heroes for a chat. He's surprised to have it confirmed that Betsy is now Captain Britain, and he also reveals that he bought the Warwolves for an upcoming exotic hunt. Pete reveals that, uh, hey, we just need the heads, and we're willing to pay for them. Cullen says, no, 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 that'd be unsportsmanlike. You can't claim a quarry that you didn't hunt yourself. That said, however, he'd be totally fine with them joining the hunt, so that's probably what they're going to do. From here, we get a full-page flyer for this upcoming Warwolf hunt, which, you know, we talked about the menu for uh, the the Krakoa Summit at the, uh, wasn't the UN, but the, uh, wherever that was in that issue of X-Men. And uh, I believe Jason wrote in and said that that'd be a fun piece of ephemera to own here. And I agree. And I think this, uh, this Warwolf hunt poster might be another fun piece of ephemera to own uh, we learn here that there are rules to this. Uh, no Krakoan hoodoo is allowed, and that the attire is, quote, cape casual. So, get a little bit of cuteness there, but what are you going to do? And so, 
We resume our story at the Bloodstone Summer Lodge in County Durham, England. The hunt is about to begin, and Betsy's brought Excalibur to take part in the game. We see Cullen's horse, and it's, uh, well, it's pretty hellish. It's got flaming eyes, and it's snorting and grunting smoke. Um, it's also got like a, well, not it, but Cullen. He's also got like a bunch of demonic cats lingering about. I don't know what good they are, but I suppose, I suppose any old point in a storm, right? Might as well, if you can have demonic cats, you might as well have them. Anyway, the pistol sounds, and the hunt begins. We follow our team, and uh, Gambit, he wonders aloud why the Quiet Council is after, you know, warwolf heads. What, what do they have to do with anything? To which Richter corrects him, stating that only one member of the Quiet Council actually wants them. This gets under uh, Gambit's skin pretty bad here. He, uh, he feels like he's been conned into unknowingly helping out Apocalypse again. Uh, Betsy asks him to think about it as him doing her a favor instead. To which he replies that, hey... It wasn't all that long ago that Betsy said she'd never ask for him for another favor again. And, uh, you know, he's not wrong. Uh, he did uh, he did make concessions for Betsy where she said if he were to agree with her, she'd never ask him for another favor again. Uh, that said, however, if that is the case, maybe this team... Maybe this team ain't the right fit for old Remy, right? <laughs> if he's never going to uh, do what the leader asks him to do, maybe he should... Uh, I don't know, maybe there's an opening on on the Fallen Angels team he can join. Now, Gambit notices a pretty young thing sitting by a creek or something, and uh, he runs over to check her out and see if she's okay. So he heads over and he finds out that this woman is actually a warwolf in human's clothing. Or, you know, skin. Betsy swoops in and decapitates the silvery beast. She then, for some reason, drops the head into the creek. So, uh... I don't know why she did that. It, it is worth noting here that in the very next panel, she's got it attached to her belt. So maybe she just wanted to give it a good scrubbing first. I suppose I, I can't fault her for that. I don't know that I'd want a beast skull, a dirty beast skull, in my pocket. So the team continues to walk. Richter asks if anyone has read A's Grimoire yet. Betsy claims that she brought it, but no, she hasn't yet read it. Richter assumes that she's mainly interested in checking it out to make sure they're not unwittingly helping a, a, bleh, not Apocalypse, actually, A, do evil things. Richter, we might recall, somehow regained control of his powers after a chat with A, so uh, I guess he's kind of willing to give the big guy the benefit of the doubt. Now Rogue flies over to let the team know she spotted some wolves running into a nearby cave. Richter does his thing, makes the earth shake to spook the beasties out. We do see our hunt host, Cullen, as he looks up to the sky to see Rogue flying toward the cave, which is apparently a big no-no, because using mutant powers is considered unsportsmanlike. I mean, dude might be a douche, but he's not wrong. Rogue is taken by surprise by a werewolf as Cullen watches on. He does not interfere. He tells her that it's uh, time for the mutants to experience a big loss. He feels like uh, maybe all the wins they've been racking up of late has made them forget just how human they can actually be. Rogue, you know, she's fine. She wrestles the warwolf for a bit, then removes her glove, and then drains the life out of the monster. Cullen's all bah humbug, and he trots away on his hell-beast horse, claiming that maybe he needs to be hunting a different kind of quarry. Now Rogue returns to her team, and she's uh, now wearing a uh, cape made out of warwolf. <laughs> I don't know if it's like a pelt, a skin. It's shiny, and she's wearing it around her neck. 
Uh, she also has its skull, so now we've got two. They've got no time to celebrate, however, as the team is suddenly overcome by... Tentacles. And we can see that those tentacles are coming from Cullen Bloodstone's hellish horse. You see, the man of the house has decided it's time to start hunting mutants, which I suppose from the cover of the very next issue should have been obvious from me to me from the get-go. But uh, I guess I just wasn't thinking about it that way. I didn't. I'm so used to covers not meaning anything that uh, I must have just thought it was a uh, a random pinup. But uh, no, <laughs> it's actually a hunt. But uh, that is everything for Excalibur number seven. Next episode, we'll be, be we'll be looking at X Force number seven. But how about we talk about what we just read? This was a uh, this was a weird issue, um, one that I might assume a lot of the uh, Dawn of X readership might dismiss as being filler. They uh, they wouldn't be entirely wrong with that in that uh, point of view, but to me, that's kind of why I enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, despite the fact that I've been Maybe a little bit hard on the Dawn of X line for under-delivering or just not delivering at all on the promises made during Hawksbox. I feel like we kind of need stories like this to actually get the opportunity to see our heroes in action in a more everyday sort of way. Does that make any sense? I feel like so many of these issues and stories that we've read have had that, like, half-pregnant feel to them. Like, they want to push the Dawn of X story forward, but they're not allowed to because we're not ready for the progression just yet. I mean, does that make sense? I'm not sure I'm explaining it as well as I I might be. Uh, This issue, it kind of sidesteps that problem in that it's, it's really just its own thing. I mean, sure, there are Dawn of X trappings, you know, portals, a yada, 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 all that kind of stuff. But it's so on the fringes that I feel like it can kind of stand on its own. Uh, it was also surprisingly light on other world pages, which might be filling me with like a relief-fueled euphoria that's subconsciously ticking my enjoyment meter up a bit. That is totally possible. That said, was this a great issue? Not really. Though I probably enjoyed it more than any I've read so far from this volume. Um, it was, you know, sort of silly in that 90s Excalibur sort of way. Which, to me, is a very good thing. Um, the art here was probably not quite up to what we've come to expect from Marcus Toe, but fine enough. Uh, it did take me a page or two to get used to it, but once I did, I liked it just fine. Um, though, of course, having a fill-in artist doesn't doesn't really uh, subvert the filler feel this issue might have given some folks, but, you know, what are you going to do? It might very well have been just something to get us to another, to you know, from point A to point B. I'm guessing Marcus Toe is probably otherwise engaged with uh, more uh, pivotal chapters of, uh, of this title. But, I mean, it was a silly issue. Um, it had a good uh, pacing. It had some good beats. Cullen Bloodstone is a villain. I mean, you, you could do better. You could do worse. It's, I'm just happy it wasn't full of magic and, uh, and other world and swords. It just felt like a, uh, a random issue. And I think in the day and age we're in right now, just everyday normal issues don't get a whole lot of play. They don't get... I don't know, they just don't... We don't I don't feel like we get them quite as often as we used to, which is a good thing in a way, but it's also... 
don't know, makes it feel like these books are a little too far up their own asses sometimes, where everything has to be some huge epic thing. Because if everything's epic, then, I mean, nothing's really epic, right? If, I mean, things get gimmicky, things get overblown, and, uh, I don't know, this felt like, it felt like we had a little bit of breathing room here, you know? We're, we're out of Otherworld for now, um... We're not dealing with a whole lot of Krakoan trappings. Um, it's just an adventure. Or not even an adventure, it's just a story. We get to see the characters, you know, relate to each other. We get to see the characters chat. Um, we get a little bit of angst, which, I mean, that is X-Men. <laughs> That's what we what we get from X-Men books. And uh, we get a little bit of a threat, you know. We get, we get MacGuffins in these uh, Warwolf skulls, so we have a reason to be where we are, and... Yeah, not a bad issue. Not a bad issue at all. Um, I, I do hope we get more issues kind of like this in the future. Um, you know, that is to say, not in Otherworld. Um, at least until we were thrust into X of Tens, which I'm guessing will probably have some otherworldly stuff involved in it. But overall, decent issue. Some might think it was filler. I don't disagree with that. But even with that said, I enjoyed it. So uh, here's to you. This was a good one. Um, And I think that's uh, all I got to say about Excalibur number seven. But before I cut us all loose here, let's uh, dip into the mailbag here. The return of the mailbag and also the return of Damien, who uh, wrote in a a wonderful piece here uh, discussing episode 50 and uh, X-Men and Fantastic Four number four in particular. He says... I've so much I, I have so much to cover this episode. I hope you aren't too bored. No, no, I won't be too bored. Uh, first thing I want to say is I wish I'd seen your tweet about testimonials. X-Lapsed is a real source of joy for me, and your openness to feedback and my bad jokes is part of the experience with me. I think I've said before that the best comics commentary is always autobiography. If you don't learn something about the reviewer, how can you judge how you'll respond to the comics? And uh, thank you so much for the kind words. Um, knowing this show, or... Really, anything I do provides even a little measure of happiness means means a whole lot to me. And uh, I do consider you part of this show. I mean, you know, the, anybody who engages and writes in, th- th- this is as much your show as it is mine. This is... I, I was on one of the... I think it was Twitter this morning, and our friend Andrew in Belfast said that this is... Like a like a reading club. This is like a book club, and it's uh and it's a lot of fun to to hear everybody's progression through these books, and for us to exchange our our ideas and thoughts about them. It's it's really it, it makes this so much more worth it than it would otherwise. You know, it's it does mean a lot to me. Um, and I think that like the more personal internet content, you know, things like blogs, podcasts, videos. Anything but the dancing videos, really, because can we just stop with those? Those are we don't need those anymore. I think that those go a long way to make us all feel a little less alone. Um, I mean, this year is kind of the perfect example of how alone many of us might be feeling or might just actually be. Um, creating content, and I've said it before, and I'll, I'm sure I'll say it many, many more times. It's it's kind of lonely to to put together content. Um, you know, if I break it down to you know exactly what it is uh, it's really it's me sitting at my kitchen island taking notes for a few hours and then later on that same day me sitting in my room talking into a microphone for you know an hour or two and uh you know sometimes you 
you know, in the midst of this, you wonder why you even do it. You know, is there a goal? Is there a reason? Is there an end game? Is there something that you're working toward? And then you wonder if maybe you do it simply because it's harder not to. What I'm trying to say here is it's a very solitary thing. So to know that there are folks out there listening is is amazing to me. And uh, that people are a part of this with me. It, it means a lot. It really does. Um, it's one of those things that it's, you know, it's legitimately hard for me to put into words. Um, and I know that might sound cliche and, and cheesy, but... That's that's really how I feel, and uh, you know don't feel bad about missing the tweet. Uh, somehow I've got like twenty five hundred followers on Twitter, and yet very very few people actually seem to care or see <laughs> what I post. It makes me wonder if I'm doing something wrong, or if maybe like ninety five percent of the people who follow me have me muted. I mean, if that's the case, why bother following me at all, right? Uh, that's baffled me for a little while now. I don't I don't understand. If we're just following each other to be uh, polite, uh, that, that's something I kind of get wrapped around the axle about until eventually my rational mind kicks in and reminds me that uh, a lot of consumers of content, myself included, do so very passively. You know, um, I, I consume content, but I very, very seldom write in or even, you know, participate. I'm very passive about it, and I have to assume that uh, that a lot of folks are, you know, and that, that there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just one of those things that, when I'm in the wrong headspace, can can kind of can kind of run me into the ground a little bit. Uh, now, Damien continues. I was very sad that the milestone episode 50 was the first in ages when I hadn't left you any feedback. This week, I returned to work after seven months off, and I ended up working mainly 12-plus-hour shifts, so I've had less time and energy to listen and respond to podcasts. But I will listen to everything eventually. Hell, every time you mention Moratory Mondays, I think that I must dig out my issues to reread and start listening to that show. There really aren't enough hours in the day. And yeah, you no worries. I mean, life life happens, right? Uh, I know everybody gets busy. Uh, you know, people get busy, especially... I mean... These times are weird. I, I, I hate falling back on blaming the times, but they are weird, and everything's kind of up in the air. It's very um, very polemic, if that's the right word to use here. It's like we get all this downtime, and we're told just, you know, stay. Sit and stay. And then, like, the worm turns immediately, and it's like, okay, pedal to the metal. Get back to it. Get back to it. Just just yesterday, you were told to stay home, but now, boom, we're, we're rushing right in. Um, it also doesn't help matters that I'm putting out so much content. <laughs> I, I almost feel greedy doing it. I feel like I'm forcing myself onto people's devices, you know? <laughs> I think that's probably just the guilty Catholic in me. But, uh, you know, I talk about, like, uh, like when Marvel will introduce 15 new titles that they launch in a month, and I, I think, like, man, they're just trying to push DC off the shelves, you know? They're just trying to monopolize the racks, and here I am putting out a new show every day for a few months, and it's like, am I doing that too? I hope not. But uh, I, I, you can't take the guilt out of the Catholic. Uh, Damien continues, You really need to set up the Patreon because I don't think I'm going to have time to get around to listening to some of your stuff until I'm 80 and living in an old people's home. That means you'll have to keep paying the hosting fees until about 2054. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm thinking I'll get moving on that pretty soon. I still feel kind of weird about it. 
I, you know, I guess I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't think anything I do is anything worth paying for. Um, but any funds that I could put forward hosting and domains would be helpful. Uh, I'd love for this endeavor to be like a break-even sort of thing. But I, I'm cool even if it never gets to that point. I know the wife would appreciate it because she thinks... Uh, she's very supportive of this, but uh, I think she questions why I put so much effort into something that isn't that isn't bringing any money in. You know, I think that's one of those questions that uh, we don't really talk about, but it's always kind of lingering. It's always in the air. <laughs> and, uh, and if I'm able to... Uh, if I'm able to make anything out of this, that you know, that's more than enough. Uh, Damien continues. It was very, it was very moving to hear you talk about Reggie and how losing him affected your ability to podcast. I first discovered your feed through a Podbean recommendation and first listened to Comics Talk. This means it was too late to ever send a comment to let him know how much I enjoyed the show, but I can tell you, thank you. And that's awesome that that show was recommended. Um, and it's also awesome that your introduction to this channel was with Comics Talk. Those episodes hold a very special place in my heart. Um, I have so much regret that we weren't able to make more of those. Because uh, I feel like those were some of like the very purest episodes that we put on this channel. Um, they were literally just conversations Reggie and I had, to, we've had for years. Uh, the only difference is we had some bullet point notes so we could make sure we cited dates and issue numbers accurately, right? Um, they, uh, they were literally conversations we had all the time. And uh, those episodes, um, when I revisited them this spring and summer to upload to the main feed, it was, uh, it was difficult, but, um... It was also healing, you know, um, very, very helpful in the healing process because as I was doing it, I realized how lucky I was, you know, blessed really, uh, to have these discussions that I had with my friend, right? Fully intact. And I could revisit them anytime I wanted, you know, um, these, these, like I said, these were, these were conversations. These were chats that we had till we were blue in the face. You know, we talked every week about these subjects and um they were our uh sort of like recording warm-up rituals you know but we wouldn't you know we wouldn't get on skype and then immediately bada bing bada boom record go we would talk we would warm up we would get you know anything that was on our mind you know out and uh you know we'd touch base we'd talk about the families we'd get we would just get stuff out you know um and, you know, then we would go into the shows. Uh, so it's like I, I'm I'm going through these episodes to re-upload them, or to actually just really upload them to the main feed, and I'm left thinking, like, how many people can say that they've got whole conversations with a friend they'd lost, right? I mean, I still have a few voicemails from them saved on my phone, which are special, of course, but how cool is it that I have these extended discussions as well? I'm very lucky in that regard, and I'm really happy that you discovered our little corner of the internet with some of our realist work. Um, I loved everything we did together. Uh, the treadmill, uh, weird comics history, the gatherums, all sorts of stuff that we did together. I loved it. But with Comics Talk, those were never meant for a wider audience. Those were meant for the handful of patrons we had. And uh, and we, we, we felt a little... 
it was it was more conversational. It was more loose. Um, the notes were very very basic, and uh, the bullet points were were uh, not not wildly detailed. You know, uh, when we did a treadmill, those were pretty much fully scripted out. Uh, there was some ad libbing, of course, because that's just going to happen. But uh, for the most part, a cosmic treadmill episode would be forty or fifty pages of of script. That we would work through and we would go back and forth But Comics Talk was different And Comics Talk was uh, was special Now Damien continues Let's get into Fantastic Four X-Men Number 4 I also felt like the last issue fell apart a little The problem with three issues of Escalation Is that there's too much to resolve in one issue It was confusing where everyone was I'm sure they established that the town Was a few miles from the lab But the fight caused by Wolverine stabbing the sentinel Mutant guy was outside the lab window Ultimately, the ending is, it ends because it ends. I suppose that's the advantage of having a reality warper as your focal character. And I do believe that Doom Tower was, like, in that populated belt on the Doom Island map that we saw on that info page in probably issue two, maybe three. Uh, So it stands to reason that they were close. And, uh, yeah, you're 100% right here. The build here was so hot and heavy during the first three issues to... Organically resolve itself in a single concluding chapter Was going to be a challenge Um, And yeah, you know, Franklin who dude it (laughs) You know, all good again in a single page Uh, It was just Yeah, a little bit of a letdown Damien continues It made sense for the two teams to become friends again By seeing some degree of what they've done in Doom's uh, What had done in Doom's behavior Sue's overprotectedness was partially understandable I also wonder if the average person in the Marvel Universe is aware that you, if you go to Krakoa, you're free to come and go via the portals. Franklin spending time on Krakoa, but effectively still living with his family, seems an obvious solution. But maybe it seems unlikely to the general public. And that is a really good question. We don't know. We don't really know what folks know about the gateways. Like, do they realize the ins and outs of it? We can go back to the rally that we saw... In uh, Marauders number one, where uh, what's her face, Fang, what, what was it? I don't remember her name. Uh, she's part of uh, Ominous Verandy now. Uh, she said her husband vanished after touching the gateway, and of course that was a big fat lie. But the people who had gathered didn't seem to understand that you can easily come and go if you're a mutant. So yeah, it definitely stands to reason that the general public might not know. So that's a in- very interesting point. Uh, Damien continues It also allows Marvel to have their cake and eat it He's on Krakoa, but he's still in the Fantastic Four It's a shame that this series wasn't ready earlier As Franklin would be a logical character to be shown reacting to Kitty's death But Marauders number 8, where they find out she's died Was before 4X number 4 So they couldn't pre-reveal Franklin on Krakoa Now that makes me wonder Will Franklin on Krakoa be a thing? Is that... I, I, I didn't think he would. I figured that uh, that this was just going to be a thing that happened. <laughs> but uh, if uh, Franklin will be on Krakoa, that's great news. Um, maybe Brevoort and White have an arrangement? I don't know. I just saw Franklin as too top-tier a character in the Fantastic Four book that they wouldn't want him out outside the office. But hopefully, hopefully we will, we will see uh, some Franklin on Krakoa. Uh, Damien continues with uh, The epilogue with Xavier rewriting Reed's mind was a great moment 
partly because it subverted the idea that the X-Men are the villains. Reed is the villain. I felt like they might even be trying to imply that his device was burning out Franklin's powers. He did get better when he was on Krakoa. I imagine they left it deliberately vague so we can all create our own headcanon. And I think uh, that was ultimately the conclusion I came to, though it was probably an episode or two later when I, when I said it. Uh, now, the Codex as being the, you know, the thing to mess with Franklin's abilities would be a very interesting resolution. And another reason why I'd like to see more of Mon Krakoa. I mean, we know that on Krakoa, his powers were, were waning less, but the Codex hadn't yet been nullified. I'd be interested to see how his powers react now that Magneto crushed the thing and Xavier made it so he could, you know, it could never be rebuilt. So, like, will Franklin be A-OK now? Or, I mean, maybe that's common knowledge to everyone but me at this point, but uh, also maybe I'm just thinking way too hard about something that uh, will never be mentioned again. I guess we'll find out, but uh, but uh, that's that's Damien's letter. Thank you so much for writing in. I'm glad everything's okay. I'm glad uh, when I didn't get a message from you in a few days, I was hoping that everything was good. But uh, knowing that you were just busy, hey, you know that that happens. That happens. But uh, thank you so much for writing in. It really, really means a lot. And uh, we're gonna wrap up with just a message I received from our friend Evan Bevins uh, regarding a uh, service called Hoopla. Now, uh, Hoopla, we'll, we'll talk about this in a bit, and this is not a paid plug. Uh, he says, Fallen Angels finally came up on Hoopla. But from your description, I don't know how exciting that is. So the only one I'm missing now is X-Force, and he says he only read the first issue of that one so far. And again, this is not a paid-for plug, though as always, I am for sale. But if you were to go to HooplaDigital.com, which is a digital library resource in North America and sign up for an account, and if I'm getting this right, I did go through the, the FAQs and the, uh, and the About page here. So long as your local library is partnered with the Hoopla service, you can read some of the stuff we're talking about on this show, and a whole lot more, for free. Um, as Evan said, Fallen Angels Volume 1 is there, for free, and that, you know, that's, that's about as much as I'd pay for it, or I would recommend you pay for it. So the first six, or all six issues, hopefully, fingers crossed, in trade format, digitally, it's there. And if your library, your local library, is partnered with Hoopla Digital, you don't even need to leave your house. You could check it out, and uh, and you could follow along. And I did a search for just X-Men, and there are a ton of X-Men books from now and yesterday. Like a ridiculous amount. You could not possibly read all of it. There is so much there. So... If you're listening and are interested in checking the service out, I highly recommend you do. I'm going to sign up for an account a little bit later on, even though I can't I can't read digital. But I, I do want to be able to be more helpful in helping people find these books. So, you know, I know a lot of people are using Marvel Unlimited, which, you know, you are reading these things for free. But if you don't feel like coughing up the money, or if maybe you only do Marvel Unlimited a couple months out of the year and you just want to catch up with this stuff as it is, if your library's hooked up to Hoopla, you can do it. So, uh, can't, I, I don't see, it, it almost seems too good to be true. But, uh, <laughs> I suppose after I sign up, I'll find out. Maybe every third page is like an ad for an MMORPG or something. So you have to, you have to get past those to get to the rest of the story. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's not it. I probably shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't disparage the service before using it. But, uh, it's there. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to uh, report in some more information. If anyone out there who's following along, if you're doing so by Hoopla, let me know. And uh, let me know uh, 
just how user-friendly it is. Uh, it's, it sounds very similar to a library. You borrow a digital book, and uh, in times like this, that's a good thing to have. So thank you, Evan, for bringing that to my attention. And I am very, very much looking forward to your thoughts on Fallen Angels. <laughs> I really want to know. Uh, and also, uh, X-Force number one, which I feel like the series kind of peaked there because it had that uh, that killer um, cliffhanger. But uh, definitely check in, let us know. But I think that's where we'll leave it today. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so quite easily on Twitter at Ace Comics and WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can go to the show's site at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Um, 90s X-Men on Facebook is the group where we really don't talk a whole lot about 90s X-Men. But uh, it's there, and it's it's eccentric. And I didn't mean for that to sound like eccentric, but it is uh, centered on the X-Men. Uh, there's also the audio archives where you can check out those Comics Talk episodes if you so de- desire, and that is chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Maybe I'll link to, to one or two of those in the show notes today to make it a little bit easier. But uh, I think that's where we'll leave it. I want to thank everyone so, so much for listening and hanging out and sharing your time and your thoughts. And uh, until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 63 of X-Lapsed, where we're, uh, we're going to have a, a little bit of a lighter episode, uh, you know, relatively speaking, uh, compared to the past few episodes, which have been a little bit deeper, um, a little bit uh, heavier. Uh, today we've got, uh, yeah, we're going to go, we're going to go on our little fox hunt here, our war wolf hunt. Um, and this is going to be, of course, Excalibur Volume 4, Number 8, at a May 2020 cover date. Uh, the story is called Verse 8, The Unspeakable and the Uneatable 2, written by Teeny Howard, with pencils by Wilton Santos and Marcos Marcus Toe, 
Inks by Sean Parsons, Marcus Toe, Roberto Poggi, Orpaggi, and Victor Nava. Colors by Eric Archinaga, letters VCs Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of Axis Hickman, edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale March 4th of 2020. And before we go too deep into this, I want to apologize if my sound levels are a little bit weird. I am having a heck of a time hearing myself. Um, Whatever I've had in my throat for the past few episodes has moved to my ears. So uh, I don't know how loud I'm speaking. (laughs) I don't know how bad this is going to sound. And if I try to listen to it back, I still can't tell. So uh, apologies if this is an audio uneven sort of endeavor here. But uh, I'll try to... I'll, I'll try to govern my uh, my pipes here, but uh, let's head right in here. We open with some werewolves snacking on a bunny rabbit. Suddenly, the ground begins to shake, which uh, causes them to scurry. Now, naturally, it's Richter responsible for the ruckus, as elsewhere, Excalibur is fighting off Cullen Bloodstone and his uh, dark passenger, or whatever the hell it is. Um, in case you can't tell, I've been watching a lot of Dexter lately, and he will not shut up about his dark passenger, so uh, I'm gonna try to shoehorn that into every uh, every discussion I get into. Now, Cullen nabs Julio with his tentacles, and uh, but then Betsy swoops in to, uh, I guess, attempt to reason with him. And Bloodstone gives in pretty quick, and then his entire demeanor changes here. It's We're going to talk a little bit about truncation later on. This feels like a scene that was just stopped on a dime and and pushed in a uh, different direction here. Because uh, Mr. Uh, Colin Bloodstone here, he's suddenly very hospitable to our team. He invites him to share a meal and spend the night at Bloodstone Estate. So, okie doke, I guess. Uh, from here we go to credits and then our roll call. Uh, the folks we're going to be dealing with today are Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Shogo, Betsy Britton, Colin Bloodstone, and Apocalypse. It's weird how they won't give him his, you know, his new hyper Krakoa name in the roll call page, but... Uh, I, I really don't have any follow-up to that. It's just weird that they don't have that. Back to comics, and it's dinner time, and we got Cullen. He's going through his rules for this uh, werewolf hunt, which he hopes that Excalibur will abide by. He reiterates that they both have something to gain here. Now, of course, we know Excalibur wants werewolf heads for whatever it is that A is planning uh, in his uh, otherworldly lab. Cullen... He just wants to play party host here. So if everyone if everyone's on the same page and cooler heads prevail, it's just it's a win-win situation, right? Now Cullen makes it clear he doesn't want any mutant stuff going on here, so no use of powers. In exchange, he promises not to let his Glartrox monster out. I guess uh, he wears a ring to keep his uh, dark passenger within him. He then toasts to civility. Now, Jubilee takes exception to this, stating that whether or not they're actually using their powers, at the end of the day, they're still mutants. So, not wanting mutant stuff is kind of a uh, kind of a, a moot point, right? Uh, from here, we get like an entire page arguing the semantics of all this, but I suppose the points made are well taken. From here, an info page. It's a letter to Bloodstone Estate from the Coven Akaba. And it's sort of a fear-mongering letter about mutants and their threat, uh, and they offer themselves, the coven, as a point of contact if any of the noble homo sapiens in Britain feel threatened or bothered or otherwise just, uh, I don't know, wanting to reach out. 
Later on, Jubilee and Richter are sharing a room. The former is loudly snoring. Richter wakes her up and tells her that he needs a little bit of dirt time, which uh, is exactly what it sounds like. And so he hops out the window and, uh, you know, he rubs his hands in the dirt. While down there, he overhears their host on the phone with Coven Akaba. And he hears just enough to realize that Cullen is tipping them off that Excalibur is at his home. Bloodstone realizes that he's being watched and decides to end his call and then just chats up Richter for a bit. This leads to a couple of panels of small talk, followed by Cullen forcibly planting a kiss on Richter's lips. And uh, Richter clearly isn't into it, and he excuses himself from the scene. Anywho, Richter breaks away to Betsy's room to let her know what he just overheard. Now, Betsy is initially cool with everything. She figures that uh, they'll abide by the house rules, they won't use their powers, they'll get the werewolf heads in the morning or whenever the, whenever the hunt resumes, and then they'll be on their merry way. She doesn't see Kavanakaba as being a factor at all. Now, Richter feels that Betsy ain't seeing both sides of this. He's sure that Cullen is going to try to frame them. Frame them for what? I haven't the foggiest idea. Did I miss or gloss over a scene where we learned that mutants or the use of mutant powers were outlawed in Great Britain, the UK, and or England? Um, Or is Bloodstone just going to do something to make them look guilty in the court of public opinion? I really don't know. I mean, is Kavanakaba, are they like duly deputized by Parliament? I don't even know. Finally, Betsy, who it's worth mentioning is dressed in a really unflattering nightgown, she comes around to Richter's mindset. Now, Rick suggests that they get out on the field right now, use their powers because werewolves are dangerous, catch the remaining wolves, then get out of Dodge before daybreak. And Betsy mulls it over for a moment before finally giving it a thumbs up. And so, our team hits the hunting grounds. Now, Rogue is still wearing that werewolf frock or whatever that she skinned off of one last issue. And it turns out when she raises the hood of the thing, she actually sort of turns into a werewolf. I didn't know that was how it worked, but hey, I'm not a I'm not a scientist, so we'll allow it. So Excalibur's doing the thing, and back in the estate, Cullen starts to feel a rumble. He knows that Richter is somewhere Richtering. Excalibur downs a werewolf and spends several panels discussing who is going to behead the beastie. Now Jubilee refuses, claiming that she doesn't she doesn't carry a sword. What is she gonna do? Chew it off, you know? Betsy suggests that she maybe get herself a sword, and uh, I know we're heading into a very swordy direction, so maybe Jubilee will get a sword. But then Betsy goes ahead and decapitates the thing, so we're up to three heads in the bag here. We needed five. Now they hear some rustling, and they turn to see Gambit running toward them, holding their fourth Warwolf Dome. He's being chased by another Warwolf, and claims that Rogue in Wolf's clothing is running behind that one. Only, it's not actually Rogue in the chase, it's Cullen Bloodstone and his Dark Passenger. Now, Cullen does his gross demony thing while talking pretty tough for like a panel and a half. Then, from out of nowhere, he's KO'd by Rogue, who was apparently still part of the chase, but just lost her place in line. So Cullen Bloodstone, the big bad of this story, is knocked out. And as luck would have it, he is carrying the fifth Warwolf head, so... Bingo, bango, they swipe it. They got all five. They're good. Uh, The team stands around a bit and chats, with Richter referring to Betsy as Posh Spice, which makes me wonder what year or what decade this is. Uh, Suddenly, there's a slight rustling that gets their attention, and Gambit suggests that, uh, uh uh-oh, we might just have a problem. 
Now, Jubilee looks into the brush and sees something, something she claims she couldn't possibly kill. Rogue agrees and defers to Betsy, who says, nah, they're not going to kill whatever this thing is. Instead, they're going to give it a home. And we, if we want answers, all we got to do is flip the page. So we flip the page and we discover that this problem is actually an adorable werewolf puppy. And I mean, it's actually adorable. It reminds me a lot of my chihuahua. So it's it's a very, very cute little thing here. So back on Krakoa, he sees this pup and he's all, nah, we got to kill it. <laughs> got to kill it. Betsy refuses, claiming that he has the five heads he needs. And so A is all, you know, magic and numbers are two different things here. Five was just an arbitrary figure. He wants them all. So he wants every werewolf head. Betsy again refuses, and then she suggests that A use this as an opportunity to show Krakoa some of his previously unseen virtues. And so Apocalypse relents, and the baby pup can live, thankfully. Info page. The stars are talking? I don't even know what to make of this. All I know is that my eyes glazed over every time I attempted to read it. I feel like Excalibur has some of the worst info pages, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not keen on them to begin with. I've long complained about, like, 80% of them that we've gotten since Hoxpox, right? But these have been, like, on par with Fallen Angels more often than not. These are no good. No good. Not interesting. Not engaging. They don't even look cool. They're just words. Uh, Now, we wrap up the issue with Betsy giving the pup to Rachel, who, due to her extensive experience with werewolves, is going to be responsible for raising the thing. And Betsy tells Rachel that she got the pup from A. Rachel mentions that Krakow is going to be getting a tiki bar soon, to which Betsy suggests that maybe Rachel go get herself a proper job, which leads to an editorial footnote, which informs us that Rachel will be getting herself a proper job in the pages of X Factor coming soon. That's Excalibur number eight. Next episode, we'll be looking at Marauders number nine. So we're getting very, very close to the double digits here. Uh, The episode after that, another Wave 2 book, we got Cable, which reminds me of a brief exchange I had on uh, on the Twitter machine uh, a couple days ago. Andrew, uh, Mighty Evil Doom on Twitter, had uh, asked me why Cable needed his own solo series. And I didn't even need to... uh, I didn't even need to hesitate because I... I basically responded that I've been asking myself that same question for over a quarter century now. I don't know why Cable has ever needed a solo series. That's not to say all the Cable series have been bad or all the Cable stories have been bad, but I don't know that it necessitates an ongoing series for the uh, for the character. And uh, considering that this Cable's a whole, you know, a Cable of a different uh, of a different uh, was it a horse of a different color? It's a Cable of a different whatever. Um, I don't have any attachment to this guy. I don't know that we could... I don't know if any of us could say we have an attachment to this character yet. So it is weird that we are getting a... Uh, that we are getting a solo series with Cable. And uh, perhaps it's just a sign of the... The glut, you know? I, I feel like every time they relaunch a family of books, we get, like... We get the books we want, or maybe in some cases we get the books we don't. But then as as it bloats, it bloats. <laughs> And uh, it's making me wonder what's what's on the horizons here. I know we have a like an X-Men Legends book coming out in February of 2020 uh, that's going to be kicked off with uh, Fabian Niciesa telling his version or the actual version of the third Summers Brother thing. So maybe it'll be some Adam X, the extreme, popping up. 
I don't know. It feels like just another sign of bloat. Um, it says it's going to be an ongoing, so uh, I guess we should uh, set aside the four to five dollars now, huh? But uh, <laughs> what, we, what we talking about? We're talking about Excalibur, right? And of course, next episode we've got uh, Marauders. But uh, before we do that, let's talk about what we got here. Now, Excalibur number eight was a good issue. wasn't great. Certainly good. Um, it didn't feel quite as fun as last issue. Last issue was was a lot of fun. Um, that said, it is still worlds better than the other world stuff that we've been dealing with. Um, this might actually be the first issue with this volume where uh, I don't think we get any other world elements involved, right? Unless I glossed over one, which is certainly a possibility. I know Apocalypse did show up at the very end, and maybe he mentioned some other world stuff. I just don't remember it off the top of my head. And I don't have the book in front of me right now, so I can't double-check. That's uh, my bad. I'm sorry. Uh, I think it was the uh, most recent issue of New Mutants where I mentioned that that story, and this was the story with um, Nova Roma, I mentioned that it felt sort of kind of truncated. You know, like, we had all these... I don't want to say interesting, because not everything was interesting, but we had these potential story spurs right um and they felt like they were headed somewhere and then they just didn't right uh we had uh magma's father kind of trash talking mutants and then that just stopped uh we had boom boom complaining about trekking through the forest just as long as it took to finish trekking through the forest it felt like bits and pieces might have uh, might have fallen out of that book and i feel kind of like that here as well uh after reading last issue of excalibur um i thought we were going to get a bigger confrontation with cullen and in fact we get two here but they were both awkwardly short and and that is not to say that i wanted to see a half dozen pages of mutants like color formed over a picture of cullen's monster or anything but this all seemed way too easy like, like, so easy that it didn't make sense. After the threats made in last issue's cliffhanger, I mean, Bloodstone comes around pretty quick here, doesn't he? Uh, we ended last issue with, you know, Bloodstone and his his dark passenger, you know, his, his monster was released. And here, just a page or two in, he's like, hey, let's do dinner. It felt weird. Um... I, I, I don't know if maybe he was just trying to buy himself some time to call this into the coven... Uh, was this story supposed to get a third issue? I don't know. Um, that was the first confrontation. The second one was just him posturing for a page before Rogue came in and punched him out. I, I, it just felt like way too much buildup for not enough payoff. Uh, kind of unsatisfying. Because, and I mean, I mean, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about Colin Bloodstone. I don't know if he's supposed to be a jokey character. All I remember him from is uh, is Avengers Arena. I don't remember him in his aristocratic uh, sort of... Uh, maybe not aristocratic, but his noble, I guess. Um, hoi polloi <laughs> setting here. I couldn't say. I couldn't say. Um, let's talk a little bit about context here, because this could be my bad, but I feel like I really miss something here. And, you know, I will totally concede that I can be somewhat dense. And sometimes things in story wind up going right over my head, especially when they're things that I'm bored by. 
Here's the thing. Is there a rule stating that the mutants can't do mutant things in the UK? Was this part of Betsy's meeting with the Queen a few issues back and I somehow missed it? Or just it went, you know, in one eye out the other? Or is this as wibbly-wobbly as I'm assuming it to be? On that subject, what sort of credentials do the Coven have? Are they actually ranking officials? I mean, it couldn't be, right? I mean, they're a friggin' Coven. That I don't know. I don't know if they get a they get a chair at Parliament, do they? Do they have chairs in Parliament? I don't know. I feel like without having this foundation properly laid, the stakes of the story just kind of fly out the window. Like, what's the threat here? What could Cullen frame Excalibur for? If they do mutant things, what law are they breaking? I I just don't get it. I feel like I'm missing something, and I probably am, because I couldn't see these plot points simply coming out of nowhere. So this has got to be on me. Um, Just don't know. Uh, I love the Warwolf puppy, and I do hope we see a whole lot more from the critter going forward. I also hope that, you know, if and when we do see more of it, I'm assuming it's going to show up in X-Factor, that it stays a puppy for a very, very long time. I don't want it to be a full-grown warwolf for a very long time, if, if ever. Uh, what else we got here? Uh, there was there was that odd forced kiss scene between Cullen and Richter. That happened. Um, I tell you, I liked Richter's reaction. He wasn't into it. And he would later say to Betsy something along the lines of like, because Betsy's like, hey, have you guys been together? And she's, he's like, you know what? Cullen and I both like dudes. Whoop-de-doo. That's the only thing we have in common. I found that refreshing in a way, especially after seeing how characters like Iceman were handled, uh, where, I mean, it, it just, it was very, very weird. Um, it's a great change of pace to see Richter not immediately drawn to being with Bloodstone. I like that a lot. I like him... And I like him kind of, like, dismissing the notion of it altogether. I, I feel like we don't get that enough. So that was cool. And kind of putting Betsy in her place. Like, why would you assume that? You know, just because we have this, just because we're attracted to guys, doesn't mean we're attracted to each other. I, I felt that was refreshing. I feel, and this might just be me, that the scene in question was a little bit stunty. Um, like, I don't think it added anything to the story, and it felt... Felt a little crammed in. Um, This is just me. Part of me wonders if maybe another plot-centric scene may have been excised to fit this one in, considering the truncated confrontation scenes we see here. I I mean, I don't know... I don't know if the novelty of the the same-sex kiss on panel is worn off just yet. Scenes like this always come across to me as as something of a statement. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of representation, right? But to me, this sort of feels like an oversimplification and maybe even like a distillation. Does that make sense? Am I even using the right terminology here? I I feel very uncomfortable discussing this since I, you know, this is outside of my realm of experience or anecdotary. It just feels like we're uh, like dismissing everything else that makes a character a character and focusing on on one thing. Um, it's, It's leading... With a, like a more basic and, and less subtle element of these characters' lives, and and I mean I I feel very uncomfortable analyzing this. Uh, it it just feels like they're using shorthand here. Does that make sense? This is shorthand, and maybe I can better explain what I mean by that if you'll if you'll indulge me a uh, an aside here. 
Um, now, back when I was in community college, which uh, if you've ever been to community college, you know that can be like an endless academic endeavor. Um, anybody out there who's taking classes at the community level might be familiar with the sensation of taking an entire semester or, God help you, a year's worth of classes, only to find out at the end of the term that these classes you just took and paid for no longer apply to your chosen academic roadmap. You know, when you start, they put you on a roadmap. This is the this is the degree you want. This is the transfer you want. These are the classes you need to take. Personally, I think it's a scam to keep people taking classes uh, for years on end without any hope of transferring to university. And I was a victim of that. So picture it. About 10 years ago, I was on this community college merry-go-round, and uh, my degree is in psychology. And so my roadmap was heavily rooted in psychology and science courses. Sounds about right, right? Well, about a year and a half in. So that's, uh, you know, in, at community level, you gen you're generally doing a two-year degree before you transfer to university. So two th uh, three quarters of the way to my associate's degree with which I could transfer to university. I was informed that about a third of the classes I'd taken no longer applied to my roadmap. And as such, likely would not transfer with me to university and wouldn't get me an associate's degree either. I actually never never got an associate's degree. Which is to say, I wasted a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of frustration and a lot of energy. Uh, I started college when I was 31 years old and I was working full time. So I was not a happy camper. Um, we were we were about 31, so I was about two or three years away from being very nearly homeless and uh, having absolutely nothing to my name. So a lot of work went into, you know, pulling myself back up to my feet and uh, having this happen really, really ticked me off. But that's not the story here. Now, I was told that I could sort of reverse engineer my roadmap if I took some humanities classes, which were now part of my roadmap. And then I'd be able to use some of my science classes, which were originally on the roadmap, as electives, right? So that way I would keep, I could keep as many of my credits as possible going towards this direction. And I'm sure there's an easier way and clearer way to explain all this, but I mean, this is me and I'm not very good at explaining things. So here we are. I moved my science classes, which were mandatory, to elective classes, and now I have these humanities classes, which weren't on my roadmap at all, are now requirements. So humanities are basically your liberal arts classes, right? Your flavor classes, things like art history and whatnot. Now, one of the humanities recommended to me was a Western literature class with a focus on American comic books. And they just launched it, so they were pushing the hell out of this thing. They were, like, pilot programming it. They wanted as many people to take this class as possible to see if it was going to remain on in the curriculum or on, in, in the course load or whatever. I was hesitant. I did not want to take this class because I feel like I'm not good at very many things. But one thing I do know is comic books. So now... If I actually take a class based on the one thing that I know, and I fail it, well, then hell, what do I even have left at that point, right? <laughs> I mean, my life's passion, um, in so far as hobbies are concerned, have been comic books. And if I find out that I, that I don't know what I think I know, and not in the Marvel everything you thought you knew was wrong, but just, 
hey, as a, as a fake-ass comics historian, you know Jack, I didn't know that my ego would be able to handle that. Anyway, suffice it to say, I took the class. And it was actually the first class that I'd taken at the college level where I scored every single available point. So I got 100 you know, percent of the class. Now, why in the hell am I telling you all this? And what does this have to do with shorthand? <laughs> well, we had a guest lecture that the professor was very, very excited about. Now, this lecture was given to us by a couple of PhDs talking about representation in comics. But they did so in a very mocking way. And they also wouldn't go more than about 30 seconds without reminding us that they, in fact, were PhDs. So they did this in a mocking way, or maybe dismissive is a more accurate way to put it. Now, they weren't dismissive of the people being represented on panel, but to the creators who wrote and drew them. And this lecture was pretty painful to sit through, but it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone talk about literary shorthand as it pertains to something like representation. The prime example, and this was the example that they kept coming back to. It was like, it was a butt of a joke for them, and they kept coming back to this one thing on their PowerPoint. It was a single panel from a Marvel comic of the Bronze Age featuring the character White Tiger. In it, they mocked the use of religious iconography in White Tiger's apartment. They said that this was shorthand for White Tiger being a Hispanic character, a Latino character. It's worth noting Neither of these PhDs realized that George Perez drew the panel in question, but uh, they wouldn't let it go. It was very obnoxious, and uh, it got to the point where it was like, I gotta say something. And it, which was, you know, stupid on my part. I mean, who am I? I'm an idiot. But they just kept coming, like, they'd, they'd talk about representation, and it's like, uh, but then there was White Tiger, and they'd come back to that panel with White Tiger there with, like, a velvet Jesus painting and a, and a crucifix on the wall, and it's like, Okay, we get it. A little bit about me. Over half my family is Hispanic. I married into a large Mexican family, and very when we when I go to family gatherings back when we were allowed to have family gatherings <laughs> before 2020 happened, if you were flying overhead and looked down, you would see one white dot, and that'd be me. You know, I was the I'm the only non-Hispanic at these gatherings. Now, one thing that everyone on that side of the family has in common is religious iconography being ubiquitous and plentiful in their homes. Now, they kept going back to this, uh, this white tiger, and I mentioned this, prefacing that it was just my own personal experiences and anecdotal at best, kind of playing devil's advocate with... Uh, yeah, I hate, I hate being devil's advocate, but I kind of was. I also reminded them that George Perez drew the image, um... The, you know, this is this image that they would not let go of as an example of poor representation. And perhaps most egregious of all, neither of them seemed to know who or what a George Perez was. They're giving a lecture on comic books. Now, upon realizing they were talking to an actual comics fan in me, and, you know, a fake-ass comics historian in me, they quickly changed the subject to talk about Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, which is probably another subject I could talk your ear about, off about, but uh, frankly, this tangent has probably already outlived its welcome. I'll just say that uh, the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, hard traveling hero stuff is uh, just a bit ham-fisted. I mean, their hearts were in the right place, but uh, try reading that lately? Yeesh. 
Uh, now, one of the bits of Devil's Advocation that I offered was that comics try. You know, they try. They might be a little bit behind the times. They might be a little late to the party, but they try. They're not always going to get it right. But again, they try to do right by being open-minded, by being diverse, by being representative. And I attempted to appeal to these goofballs by pointing out what a risk it was in the first place to introduce a Hispanic hero. I mean, frankly, simply from a marketplace standpoint, that's a risk. And yes, that might sound silly and quaint in current year, but I mean, late 60s, early 70s were a very different time, and the comics industry was a very, very different place. I then cited... You know, something out of the day. I cited an issue of Fearless Defenders that had come out that very week of this lecture. And the cliffhanger page of this issue of Fearless Defenders was a same-sex kiss between Valkyrie and... I don't remember her name. She was like an archaeologist or something. I asked them how they viewed this as it pertained to representation. I asked if this was shorthand, or at the very least, a sort of exploitation for shock value. And I mean, this was 2012, 2013-ish, so a same-sex kiss on panel shouldn't be a shocking cliffhanger. It should just be something that is, right? Well, they didn't know uh, what a Fearless Defenders nor a Valkyrie was. And I was pretty much simply dismissed by some, you know, we still have a long way to go sort of sentiment. Um, I was a little bit irritated, but not terribly surprised. So all of this to say, and I apologize for droning on as much as I did, and I hope I didn't turn anybody off with anything I said here, but uh, because, I mean, this is a subject I have zero credibility in. I just feel like this scene was kind of forced in and, and a little bit exploitative and uh, not so much marginalizing, but minimizing these characters. And, I mean, agree, disagree, think I'm a horse's ass, <laughs> whatever the case may be, I... I just feel like that uh, scene just came out of nowhere and uh, felt... It just reminded me of the of the concept of literary shorthand as it pertains to uh, things like representation. And, uh, yeah, I apologize for that tangent. Back to Excalibur. Overall, like I said, it was a decent little story. It suffered uh, some pacing issues. Uh, the art here, worth noting, was a bit uneven, which... Probably to be expected, considering there were like 750 artists on... Not, there were like a half dozen artists on this thing. That, in itself, may be evidence of truncation. I mean, we've seen that before. We've seen it before where, you know, they uh, they cut certain bits out, but they, need, they still need other pages drawn. They're going to go one way instead of another, so they bring another artist in. They go straight from from roughs to inks. That It doesn't look like we went from roughs to inks here, but... Uh, you know, the point, I, I hope the point is uh, is well taken. I figure the issue is probably worth checking out. Uh, at the very least, uh, I will say that it got me excited to see more of the Warwolf puppy in the pages of X-Factor. So, that's that. Uh, before we go, we got some mailbagging to do. We're going to start with uh, a missive from Damien regarding Marauders number 8. Now, he says, I have very little to say about this issue because it was practically perfect. The reactions of each character to Kitty's death were perfectly executed. Each revealed a truth about the team. The elemental fury of Iceman particularly stood out. Ice has the potential to seriously injure people without killing them. He can hurt people without killing them in a way that few of the X-Men can. And that is a problem with this book. That is a problem with books that are good. There's hard, it's hard to say much about them, isn't it? 
And uh, I find myself struggling when we come across good books. Marod is, is, is usually a very difficult um, script to write because, like, what can you say? You know, it's I could just say, it's good, and then <laughs> move on. But it's easier to pick at things, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, I agree with Damien for the most part here. I do think that Iceman's um, brutality was a little much. And I said the same thing about Kitty early on in the series. But I thought that that was uh, a bit much. I do appreciate that, uh, I mean, he was in a rage. Um, so I do appreciate that. But still, it felt felt like a little bit much. Um, Damien continues, I think I've said before that my favorite element of Marauders is the momentum. Everything feels important, and it relentlessly moves on. There's no part four of six feeling. Every issue advances the overall story or shows a development of character. It's wonderful. And I agree. I agree. Um, I think I only had any sort of issue with uh, like one issue of Marauder so far. I think I, I complained a bit about uh, Kitty being very annoying during Marauder's number two. Everything else has been fantastic, and even that issue wasn't bad. She was just annoying. <laughs> but, uh, no, Marauders is... Marauders is good comics. Um, I, I hope, and I, I haven't checked the, uh, the sales charts uh, outside of the few times we did it here on the air, but I, I hope people are buying Marauders. I hope Marauders has a strong readership and, uh, and continues for as long as it can. It's a very, very good book. Very, very good book. If you're not reading Marauders, I definitely recommend you do so. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, Damien. It's always appreciated and always uh, look forward to it. Uh, next, we have a letter from Jeremiah. He just finished reading Excalibur number one. He says, I read Excalibur number one last night and listened to the podcast. Unlike you, I really like King Arthur mythology mixed in when possible, so I thought that was okay. But, woof, the comic was not great in my opinion. It was confusing, and I just didn't understand what was going on, with the exception of Captain Britain being controlled by Morgan Le Fay. If I were someone who made comic-buying decisions based on one issue, I would have not bought issue two. So far, it's my least favorite of the Dawn of X launch books. It doesn't help that I don't care that much about Gambit and Rogue either. And yeah, I, uh, I mentioned to Jeremiah that I feel like Excalibur is trying to do too many things. It's trying to be too many things to too many people, and... As such, it really doesn't succeed at any of it. It's trying to be a superhero book. It's trying to be this, like, swords and sorcery book. It's trying to be this uh, King Arthur myth. And, and it's pulling itself in way too many uh, directions here where none of it really comes across as being all that good. Um, I mean, the issue we read today, Excalibur number 8... Far better than anything from the first handful of issues, for sure. And, and even that one I had some problems with. But, uh, yeah, these early issues of Excalibur are a little bit a little bit rough. I su I'm sure that there are folks out there who love the concept of Otherworld, who love uh, the way that they are integrating um, the, uh, the Avalon Camelot mythology here. And that's great. I'm just not that guy. Uh, this was, like Jeremiah said... My least favorite book until I got to that other one. So <laughs> Excalibur was was a tough sell. And just like Jeremiah says here, if I uh, if I were someone who made decisions on reading one book, if I'm going to pick up the next one, and I wasn't a 
a psychopath who has to own everything, I'm sure I would have dropped Excalibur, for sure. Um, it's probably a good thing that I let it sit and just gather. When I, when, I, uh, when I started buying these books, I, you know, I wasn't reading them as I was buying them. They were just stacking up. Had I been reading Excalibur, maybe I would have gotten the wild hair to stop, you know? I'm happy I didn't, so, you know, we have this little program and adventure here to, uh, to play with. But, uh, but, yeah, Excalibur certainly wasn't my favorite early on. So, thank you so much for, uh, for checking in and uh, for following along, Jeremiah. It really means a lot. We're going to wrap up with a short comment from our friend Evan, Evan Bevins. He just read Fallen Angels number two. And he wrote to me and said, Fallen Angels number two, making sure nobody has fun reading comics, not even with a Dazzler appearance. And, uh, yeah, Fallen Angels number two, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that was uh, one that Damien wrote in to say that uh, that might be like on his short list of worst X-books he's ever read. Fallen Angels number two, because I came down on the... I really, really wore the kid gloves early on in the Fallen Angels reviews here. For the first two or three issues, I was kind of... I overcorrected. You know, I overcorrected my scores or my opinion because uh, I didn't want to come down too hard on it. I knew I didn't like it, but... Uh, you know, there's a difference between not liking something and something not being good. And I always figure that my opinions are wrong 100% of the time. So if I don't like something, that must mean everybody else does. So I hesitate to say, this is bad. Uh, Damien came in and said, no, no, this is bad. And then other people came in and said, no, no, this is bad. You're being too nice to this book. <laughs> And, and I came around, I came around, and, and Fallen Angels has become sort of a butt of the joke on the program at this point. But, uh, yeah, Fallen Angels number two, I mean, Fallen Angels number one could have been just an anomaly, right? It might have just, just come limping out of, the, uh, out of the stall instead of running. It's like, okay, we'll give it that first issue. Issue two, though, was like The Rude Awakening. And uh, I think it's set in for a lot of us that, oh, this is really what we're getting out of this book. And I feel bad for the folks who were reading it as it was coming out because they didn't know it was only going to run six issues. So this was, they were buckling in for the long ride. You know, I, at, at least when I read it, I knew it was only a six issue deal, at least for now. So it was just like, okay, well, we're a third of the way through. <laughs> you know, I was, I was able to take solace in that fact. But, uh, Fallen Angels 2 was not good. Not good. And Dazzler, she gets a she shows up for like something like two or three panels and still gets a little, you know, a little button on the roll call page, but uh yeah, yeah, I thought she was going to join the team. I think that's what I said when I read it. I thought she was going to be a Fallen Angel, but uh no, it wasn't the case at all. But uh thank you so much for uh for putting yourself through Fallen Angels for us uh Evan. <laughs> I, I'd love to hear your thoughts moving forward uh through that series if you if you do decide to, and I figure you're a third of the way through, and it'll probably only take you about eight minutes to read the rest of the thing. So if you have a spare eight minutes, give it a goo and, uh, and let us know. But uh, thank you so much. Um, now, if anybody out there would like to uh, let me know your thoughts on anything, anything at all, you could do so. Uh, reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. 
You can find the show notes and blog posts at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. This program resides at xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. It's also a Facebook page, 90s X-Men, and the entire Chris and Reggie archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's uh, where we'll put a pin in it for today. I hope I haven't been shouting in your ears. I really, really hope I haven't been shouting at you. I just, I can't hear. My hearing is really, really in and out right now. So if I shouted at you, I'm not mad. It's uh, just uh, I'm, I'm sick and too stupid not to do a show. Um, but uh, I hopefully this, uh, this all sounded decent-ish. As decent as anything I do might sound. But thank you all so, so much for hanging out and sharing your time with me. And uh, look forward to hearing from you all. And uh, until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 68 of X-Lapsed. Uh, and it's Excalibur Day. And uh, one of the things I've said a few times during our last couple of outings with this book is uh, something along the lines of, boy, it's nice not to have to deal with Otherworld. To which I say, yeah, it was. <laughs> We're back in Otherworld today. It's Excalibur, volume four, number nine. And this had a May 2020 cover date. The story is called Verse 9, Schools of Magic, written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Arshinaga, letters, VCs, Corey Petit, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sabolski. This had a cover price of $3.99 and went on sale March 18th of 2020. So we open, and it's the ceremony of the Warwolf Skulls, I guess we can call it for... Lack of a better term. Um, now, I'm not sure if it was made clear prior to this, but the whole point of this entire endeavor was to use the Warwolf Skulls as something of a beacon of sorts uh, in order to guide our team to the secret location of the Starlight Citadel in Otherworld, where Majestrix Opaluna, Opal, easy for me to say, Opaluna Saturnine hangs out. 
Now you see, the Citadel used to serve as like a headquarters or a meeting place for the Captain Britain Corps, which isn't really a thing anymore. Now I'm not 100% sure why this is such a pressing thing. Maybe, maybe A just wants to plant a gateway seed there. It'll make a bit more sense as we work our way through it. Uh, but, I mean, suffice it to say, I've been completely open with you all here. Otherworld makes me glaze over even in the best of times, so... This could be obvious. They could have said this... They could have written this in plain English, and I just missed it. Maybe it was one on one of the horrendously wordy info pages that this book usually carries, including today. So, as the ceremony commences... Hey, flashes back to sending his four horsemen out way back in the long ago during that whole splitting of Krakoa and Arako thing that we saw during Hoxpox, uh, which I'm, I'm guessing we're going to probably see more of pretty soon. He then tells Gambit that he needs Excalibur to do something for the good of the people. From here, it's an info page, and it's all about the Starlight Citadel. There are a lot of words on this page, and very... Very few of them are interesting. Um, we find out, or at least, you know, a lot of us knew this, but Merlin and his daughter Roma once lived there. Uh, of course, the Captain Britain Corps once met there, and now Saturnine is there acting as an otherworldly guardian. I feel like I'm supposed to be, like, a whole lot more interested in this. <laughs> like, I'm sorry if I'm coming across as dismissive. This is just... Uh, it's going to take a whole lot of doing to make me care about any of this. Um, now, if that takes a bit of the oomph out of my analysis for you, I completely understand and I apologize, but uh, it is what it is. Um, and also what is, is our two pages of credits, followed by our roll call. Today we're going to be focusing on Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Shogo, Betsy Britton, Apocalypse... Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian Braddock, Marianna Stern, Reuben Wilmot, uh, Megan Poussineau, Megan Braddock, we'll say, and Pete Wisdom. Now we hop back to comics, and uh, the Warwolf beacon is glowing outside the lighthouse. Inside, our team's enjoying a bit of downtime, and I enjoy this scene as well, because it's just nice seeing these people together. You know, not having to worry about druids and magicians and crap like that. It's just them hanging out. I mean, we see Gambit brushing Rogue's hair. We have Jubilee trying to feed Shogo. Betsy's just kind of there. Um, but she has a strange feeling overwhelm her. And uh, then she excuses herself to check check something out outside. And outside, she sees her beautiful brother, Brian, having some dirt time. Kind of like Richter did last issue. Like, literally, he's just there, knelt down, rubbing his hands in the soil. Betsy calls out to him, and he leaves. She stands around thinking about how Brian feels pretty incomplete right now before heading back inside and deciding that Excalibur ought to leave this place tonight. We shift scenes to the Citadel. A woman named Christabel has been called to fetch something out of the vault for her royal wyness. Oh, boy. Uh, and so she does. And she slips this little pouch into an otherworldly dumbwaiter or something. Just then, the enormous face of Apocalypse appears in the skies above. Then, all the bell towers in the Citadel begin to gong, and a great big mirror in Saturnine's room is sh smashed and shattered. And I'm going to assume that she did the smashing, which... You know, I'm a pretty superstitious guy, so I fear she probably just doomed us all to seven years of bad otherworld stories. So, fingers crossed that's not the case. Another scene shift. Now we're in London. 
And we're at a meeting of the Coven Akaba, Akaba, however you say that. You know, the Coven. Now, this is being led by the world's, you know, most hardcore PTA mom, uh, Mariana Stern, and that bearded dude, Ruben, who we saw a few issues back uh, sitting down with Betsy and Pete. Now, they're talking about the balance of power in Otherworld uh, and how Morgana, Morgana Le Fay has been taken down and replaced with that weirdo, Jamie Braddock. Also, how that weirdo, Jamie Braddock, has the backing of Apocalypse and Captain Brett, Betsy Britton. Stern then calls for a sacrifice to be made in the name of Lady Morgana. And as with any cult or coven, uh, a member quickly and happily volunteers to uh, be laid out on Dexter Morgan's table. Bada-bing, bada-boom, the poor LARPer is stabbed right through the heart. Now, one of the followers of the coven sees this and runs out of the room through a long hallway and then outside onto the street. When she unhoods, we see that it's Megan. And she was just there doing some spy work for Britain's most convenient man, Pete Wisdom. Now, she fills him in on everything that just went down, including the coven's plan to cause that weirdo, Jamie Braddock, to do something foolish. To which Pete's certain that it wasn't going to take him all that long in the first place, you know, even without a cabin interference. Jamie Braddock's a weird dude. He's going to mess something up. They talk a bit about Megan's husband, you know, Betsy's beautiful brother, Brian, and how poorly he's treating himself since returning from Otherworld. Megan mentions how she might try to talk to Xavier and the Quiet Council to see about getting them a spot on Krakoa, and since Brian ain't a mutant, I wonder how that might play out. Now, Megan also alludes to the fact that Pete and Betsy might be kind of an item or a thing right now, which, yeah, that's probably going to happen. Next up... It's Otherworld, uh, where our Excalibur have taken to the skies, trying to follow the beacon to the secret citadel. They stop to camp out, and then we get a—we actually get a cute couple of pages of actual character time here. This is this is fun stuff here. Uh, Rogue and Gambit are, uh, well, they're amorous, because uh, <laughs> I don't think there's anything on any world that can make them unhorny, right? They're always going to want to do something. Uh, Betsy, she hunted down a pair of bunnies for dinner, which makes Jubilee gag, you know, possibly gagging her with a spoon. Um, she, in a bit that actually makes me chuckle out loud here, Jubilee says that rather than eat the bunnies, she'll just have protein bars for dinner. And then Richter's like, hey, that sounds good, and he asks for one, and he finds out that uh, these aren't protein bars, they're just plain candy bars, which I, I thought that was pretty cute. Uh, it's not often that I chuckle or even smile when reading a comic book, but this one got me. This was cute. I liked it a lot. Now, sitting around the fire, Betsy lays out some of the reasons for this mission. Naturally, the Citadel was home to the Captain Britain Corps, uh, many of whom were Bryans of the multiverse, but the Corps no more, and she'd like to know why. At that very moment, Opal Luna Saturnine has assembled her priestesses with orders to hunt down Excalibur. Then an info page, it's the Moonlit Diadem. Nope, not reading that. Uh, I really meant it when I said that outside of Fallen Angels, Excalibur has some of the worst info pages of this line. And this is yet another example of that. It's just, it's way too pleased with itself and it doesn't give us anything we could use. Um, back to the campout. Rogue and Betsy are having a bit of a heart-to-heart. We've seen them have these uh, from time to time, and they're always pretty cool. And we learn a little bit more about why this mission is so important to Betsy. Now, since the Citadel was a meeting place of the Captain's Britain, why then is it being kept hidden from her? 
considering she is Captain Britain right now. Why can't she go there? And I'll hand it to him. This is a really good question, and actually proper motivation to go seek the place out. I still think Otherworld is boring, but at least they have a reason to be here, other than Apocalypse said, you know, go clear the pool. Meanwhile, the priestesses are all zapped down to a nearby wooded area, where several of them uh, aim bows and arrows of light into the sky in preparation for an attack. As this is going on, Jubilee and Shogo, who, of course, if you recall, Shogo is a great big dragon in Otherworld, they're having themselves a bit of a night flight. When, bang, the priestesses let fly their arrows of light right into poor Shogo's wing, and he begins to go down. Now, Betsy... Seeing this go down, she attempts to calm the baby dragon uh, down from the ground, while Gambit, Rogue, and Richter try to prepare some space for him to land as softly, I guess, as possible. In the sky, Jubilee gets a good look at the priestesses, and so she launches herself off of Shogo's back and paths the ever-loving hell out of them with her fireworks powers. Saturnine sees this and considers it to be an act of war. She then reaches for that pouch that we saw Christabel deliver earlier in the issue, which I think contains an Excalibur-flavored Captain Britain core. I'm not sure exactly what we're supposed to be seeing here, but what we do see is Jubilee, Richter, Gambit, and Rogue all decked out in the Union Jack. And that's where we leave it. That is Excalibur number 9. Next episode, we'll be looking at X-Force number 9, but, uh... Let's see what we can squeeze out of this one to talk about. Um, I feel like we've hit a stretch of issues and, of course, episodes where we're getting stories that are just kind of fine, right? They're just there. They're fine. Nothing to get excited about. But unfortunately, not a whole heck of a lot to talk about either. Um, It's more Otherworld, uh, which I want to make it clear here. This isn't an Excalibur problem. This isn't the Teeny Howard problem. This isn't even a Dawn of X problem. This is a Chris problem. This is a Chris Sheehan problem. I just don't care about Otherworld. I don't see myself coming around to a story in this setting. Hopefully I could be proven wrong. But like when I think about covens, priestesses, druids, dragon babies, not my thing. You know, really not my thing. I feel like if I wanted to read those kind of stories, those stories exist. You know, I could go read Conan. I could go read anything. Not what I'm looking for out of an X book. Again, that's nobody's problem but my own. And uh, it feels kind of like I'm, I'm copping out here. Uh, but I want to make it clear. I, I've i revisited today's script three times, trying to think of a way to approach this little talking time section, right? Trying to think of things to actually talk about. But I, I really can't come up with a whole heck of a lot. Um, again, this was not a bad issue. This wasn't a bad issue. I, I enjoyed a lot of it. It's just sort of there, though, right? Um, out of the parts I did enjoy uh, were especially the parts where the team just got to hang out and talk. Unfortunately for you know my taste, there wasn't quite enough of that here for me. Especially when we consider that we came off the last two issues where so much of it had to do with how our characters interacted with one another. I wanted more like that. Um, the whole werewolf hunt at the... Uh, the Bloodstone Estate it was fun. It was fun, and we got to see our characters just chill out and hang out and get a breather. Um, but here, you know, we're right back in Otherworld. And I know everything that we get here is necessary, right? I mean, this isn't just, 
Silliness for silliness's sake. We gotta assume that the coven is headed somewhere, right? They may bore me to tears, but I, they're headed somewhere. Uh, beautiful brother Brian acting weird. I gotta assume that's heading somewhere. Otherworld and Saturnine, that's probably heading somewhere pretty quick. And I'm feeling like, and this may just be me projecting, I don't know, but since we got our initial story arcs out of the way, you know, the first half dozen or so issues of all the Dawn of X books, I feel like we got those stories done, and now we're in this, like, treading water space here where we're just going to let everything decompress to as long as it takes for us to get to X of Tens. You know, we have we know when X of Tens is going to start, we just need to get there. And rather than try to like cram a whole bunch of action in and a whole bunch of interesting little story bits, we're just going to slow down. We're going to decompress and we're just going to we're going to tread water till we get to the next big thing. Again, that's not an X-Men problem. That's not a Dawn of X problem. That's just current year comics. And uh, if you're if you're new to the hobby, this is probably not something you're noticing. Me being somewhat seasoned, it feels like it's a little bit of an anvil to the head here. It's just like, why aren't we getting where we need to go? But of course, we do know there is a big event on the horizon here. Um, what else? What else? Uh, I know I already mentioned this, but the info pages. Ugh. Excalibur has some of the worst and unnecessary info pages of the entire line. I mean, just give us two more story pages. You know, help us get through the story a little bit quicker. I don't need to see the priestess's diadem. I don't need to see the citadel. If you if you just told me what the citadel was, I don't need to see a whole page that tells me what it is again. You know, what, what book was it? We just read uh, New Mutants number nine, where they told us about this Carnelia city, this Carnelia country. And then we get a page telling us all about the Carnelia country. It's like, I don't care what their exports are. I don't care that what, what kind of money they use. I don't care what year they were established. I don't care what their population is. That has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't add the, the flavor that we're looking to add. So it's just give us more story or give us something interesting. Um, the uh, art here. Love the art here. I thought the art was fantastic. Everything popped really, really well. I love the uh, identity that Marcus Toe is giving this book. It's uh, really, really solid, solid stuff. Uh, the colors are fantastic. Um, really a very, very pretty book. Absolutely. Which, I mean, although Otherworld does bore me, Otherworld gives, um, gives opportunity to explore so many wild uh, artistic, you know, uh, ideas. Such as, you know, the priestesses, the castles, the dragons. I can see an artist having a really good time with this. And clearly, uh, Marcus Toe is, is fantastic and does a, a wonderful job bringing the, these stories to life. But overall, I mean, I feel like I'm copping out on you here, but it this is, yeah, this was an issue of Excalibur that dealt with Otherworld. And uh, from the looks of it, we're nowhere near done. So uh, we'll just keep going as uh, best we can. And, uh, hey, you know, stranger things have happened. Maybe I'll come around to it. I, I hope I do. That'd be pretty cool, but uh, no guarantees. Now, before we cut out of here, we have some mailbagging to do. So let's get right to it here. We're going to start with Damien, who's discussing a biggie. He's talking about X-Men number seven. Uh, he says, 
I have so much to say about this issue. Let's start with the Cyclops-Wolverine conversation. Now, for folks who haven't listened to that episode, this was a scene, a very short scene, that got a lot of play online here, where it was not so much hinted at, but uh, maybe it was hinted at. I, I, I don't know the proper way to put it, but... Uh, there was an illusion here that Cyclops and Wolverine had a had an attraction to one another. Um, I believe Scott asked him about uh, asked Wolverine about like seeing him in a speedo, and he's like, "Ah, oh, you know, I, I, w- I couldn't pass that up." I took it to be a joke. Uh, Damien too took it to be a joke here, but we'll uh, we'll let him explain it. He says, "As you know, I am a great big gay." But I uh, seem to have missed the online discourse on this conversation. And I follow a lot of gay X-Men fans on Twitter. It's clearly a joke. I don't think Hickman is seriously trying to say that Wolverine is attracted to Cyclops. Tone of voice is hard to convey in a comic book, but body language is relatively easy. And the staging of this scene sets them deliberately apart. There is definitely no flirtation on panel. I did see one article reference this in relation to the queer baiting versus queer representation discourse. Queer baiting is where, is where stories imply characters are gay to engage the LGBT plus audience, but to keep it deniable. They want us to be able to identify with the characters without having to scare off any homophobic readers. I don't know if we can accuse Hickman of queer baiting, as he also has a number of characters who are identified as LGBT plus in the X-Books, but as you said, he's happy for people to see what they want to see. And yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree 100%. This whole scene sort of turned into a, I'm not sure exactly what the setting is, a tempest in a teapot, tempest in a teacup. A tempest somewhere very small is what I'm trying to say here. Um, I think there was probably equal amounts of wish fulfillment and flame stoking at play here. Um, I don't know. I don't know that it was so much baiting of any reader, but more baiting of comics journalists because they are uh, very, very easy marks. And I mean, like, both real comics journalists and wannabe comics journalists. Um, Hickman's a smart dude, clearly. He's a smart dude. He had to have known that the Bleeding Cool and Bleeding Cool alikes of the world were going to run with this as hard as they could and squeeze every single click out of it that they could. Uh, you know, love clicks, and perhaps more importantly to them, hate clicks, you know? There's no such thing as bad publicity, and uh, virtue signaling goes a long way for places like Bleeding Cool, so... There's that. Damien continues. I, could, I would happily see Wolverine presented as bisexual. He's about 150 years old. Surely he'd have experimented at some point, if only through boredom. What I find unbelievable is that he would be attracted to Cyclops. His past romantic history shows him attracted to fiery women. Cyclops is far too controlled for Wolverine. I'm definitely anti this relationship. And yeah, you know, I'm not a big fan of this pairing either. In fact... I'm not sure I would like that. I, I don't like Wolverine and Cyclops even being friends, so much, you know, much less lovers. I do see them as respecting one another. I do see them as tolerating one another. I do see them talking to one another every now and again, and maybe maybe out of respect and a uh, like a professional admiration. But it's like I don't see them going out like bowling. And, and going out for wings or anything I don't, I just don't see that um, so yeah, You know, stranger things have happened uh, Damien continues Moving on, I loved the Douglock transition I think this is our first sighting of Warlock In the Hox Pox Docs era And it was great to see him back 
It seems odd that Doug is hiding him, but hopefully that will lead to a future story. It's a bit of a spoiler, but there's a scene in X of Tens when Warlock being on Krakoa is treated as something of an open secret. Everyone knows he's there, but they're humoring Doug by ignoring him. Obviously, when I see Doug, Warlock, and Krakoa together, it brings to mind the theories we've all had about the man-machine-plant hybrids. And that's very interesting. I, I, I wonder why Doug would want that to be kept a secret. You know, Warlock is... As far as I know, he's a he's a you know a part of the family, right? He's a member of the team whenever he wants to be, and he's alive. Um, you know, we did see in New Mutants number nine that Doug is attempting to interface with Krakoa, and I wonder if he has any designs on infecting the island with some techno-organics or something. You know, um, maybe the Phalanx future will come nine hundred ninety-nine years early. Who knows? I, I wonder, uh, you know, it's like if humoring Doug might come back and bite everybody. That could be interesting because Doug is, you know, as 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 so many people like to say, he's underused and underrated. He's he's like a linchpin character here. He is uh, the way that the island can communicate. So I wonder, uh, you know, they put all this trust in this one dude, and we just don't know what he might be up to. That's that's very cool stuff. Damien continues. The opening of the Cyclops Nightcrawler conversation with the talk about the tower sat heavier with me on rereading. I skipped over it on my first reading, presuming it belonged to one of the more magical characters like Aeee or Exodus. Relooking at it, particularly being halfway through X of Tens, I see it as looking very otherworldly. Is it a structure from before the island separated? It looks like a tuning fork combined with a sword, but there are are but there are or Oh boy, easy for me to say. But there are organic elements as well. Sometimes I think I overanalyze this stuff. You know, today we saw the Citadel, right? Uh, the Fork Tower on Krakoa does look very otherworldly. If we compare it to the Citadel, they have very similar qual- uh, characteristics. I do wonder, maybe... You know, we, we were paying so much attention to Apocalypse trying to spread... Um, Spread control over other world, right? He's trying to get these these gateways everywhere he can get them. I wonder if other world is uh, returning the favor. You know, is other world trying to stake their claim on Krakoa? Is that a way they can get through? I don't know. That could be interesting. And I don't know a whole lot about X of Swords yet or X of Tens yet, but uh, I'm seeing a lot of weird characters that I've never seen before, and. Uh, I don't know, maybe they maybe there's something to do with this uh, this weird tuning fork building. Uh, Damien continues. The theological discussion between Scott and Kurt is almost designed for me. I have a degree in theology, and I'm always up for a bit of debate. Of course, we often find ourselves comparing it to our real-world religion when the Marvel Universe is a very different place. There's empirical evidence of souls existing separately from bodies in the Marvel Universe. They know that there's an afterlife. Kurt lived in heaven and that your soul can return. Within their world, the conversation about souls is different. We could spend hours debating whether there's such a thing as a soul. In fact, many people would determine that the part the soul is a part of the body made up of chemicals and electrical impulses. Still though, they require a leap of faith. Is it the same is it the same them that's being resurrected? They have memories of their previous lives, but it's entirely possible that the Kurt who died on the Orcus forge is sat in heaven and that this is an all new all different Nightcrawler. And yes, 100%. 100%. It is such a weird thing whenever we try to uh, relate things like faith in the Marvel Universe to faith in the real world. 
As you said, um, there is a Marvel heaven. There is a Marvel hell, because we've seen them. We've been there. Uh, Some of our favorite characters have lived there. You know, Nightcrawler lived there. It's kind of uh, why it's hard for me to, like, really glom onto the fact that there are skeptics in the Marvel Universe. Like, I think we're supposed to view Beast as a skeptic, which, if we're looking at him through a real-world lens, yeah, it makes sense. Stands to reason. However, he's not from the real world. And, I mean, he's friends with gods. <laughs> he's friends with people who have gone to heaven and come back. It's, it's weird. Now, the idea that the characters we're following right now uh, are not the characters that we know and love and that they're just husks, it's one I kind of get stuck on. Um, like, if these characters are dying, are the reborn X-Men really the same people? Uh, it's something we've talked about a lot on this program, and it's, I still don't know where I fall on it, because I still don't know enough about exactly what we're supposed to be seeing yet. I don't know that it's been explained anywhere yet. Um, so it's, it's kind of like a waiting game we're playing here, and in a weird way, I mean, to go off on a little bit of an aside here, it kind of reminds me of, um, I can't remember which comedian it was, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld, he was talking about, uh, sports fandom. And how, like, at the end of the day, if we take a step back and truly ponder our fandom, you know, if we're a fan of a team, all we're really doing is rooting for our favorite shirt. You know, the players change all the time. Management changes. Coaches changes. Sometimes team names and logos change. Everything changes. But we still root for the shirt. You know, I'm a lifelong New York Mets fan, which, you know, it's it's a hard thing to be. I still consider myself one to this day, despite not having watched a game in years. I couldn't tell you a single player on the team, but I still consider myself a fan. Is that something like what we got here? Like, we're rooting for Nightcrawler because he looks like Nightcrawler. You know, he looks like Nightcrawler, he smells like Nightcrawler, he talks like Nightcrawler. Whether or not he actually is Nightcrawler is irrelevant, because we're just rooting for the look. You know, it's... I don't know, it's weird. It's... (laughs) It's 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 really weird. I, I I'm looking forward to seeing how I'm looking forward and dreading, I should say, how this uh, actually will be played out. Uh, Damien continues. Kurt suggests creating a mutant religion, but really, Exodus is way ahead of him. The way he's indoctrinating the youngsters about the Scarlet Witch and the decimation is eerily reminiscent of a cult leader. It seems unlikely that setting up Wanda as an Antichrist figure is going to end well. The crucible itself is presented like a sacrament. You compared it to an adult baptism, which is appropriate, but doesn't get across quite how gruesome this is. He slices Melody apart in full view of her friends and family. And that's an excellent point on Exodus. Um, And although I I really enjoyed his scene here, I really didn't put two and two together and uh, realized that he is absolutely and without question indoctrinating these young Krakoans. Though personally, I wouldn't mind seeing Wanda tossed into a volcano. For the whole new Mo- no more mutants thing, um, uh, this is you know definitely him grooming the next generation of uh, of mutants here to hate this uh, pretender. You know, I-, I really should research to see if Scarlet Witch is even a mutant anymore. I keep I keep meaning to do that. I know they changed them to miracles briefly. I don't know if they still are miracles, so I, I should check into that. But uh, yeah, I don't think I want to see the X Men versus the Avengers again because that never seems to work out well for the X Men. Uh, And for the Crucible, yeah It is totally gruesome And I shudder to think of a real-world ceremony That we compare it to, right? Other than 
I guess, ritual sacrifice or something, I guess. Uh, it, it really it really is something. And it's uh, it's a scene and a, a thing that it's hard to it's hard to let go of. It really sticks with you. And it makes you view these characters a little bit differently. Uh, Damien continues. We're shown that Sam has to be held back to prevent him from intervening, but the people who live on Krakoa are not shown reacting to the death of Melody, only to her resurrection. Maybe they're trying to imply that most people agree with Wolverine, that it is Melody's choice, so they shouldn't intervie- interfere, but I can't imagine being in that audience and not trying to stop it. I like to think most people would protest even if they accepted her free will, if only because it is a natural instinct to preserve life. Don't forget, this is a crowd of superheroes. They have trained themselves to protect life at all costs, and yet they're able to just stand by. I can only see this working if Krakoa is having an effect on their decision-making. It was stated that Krakoa feeds on mutant energy, but it doesn't have a negative effect as it's spread out over so many people, all of whom lose a little bit of energy. Maybe this energy loss makes them more docile, more credulous. Having said that, Professor X holds his hand up to his head just before the killing blow, which is usually a signifier that he's using his powers. Maybe he's live-editing the crowd. That's interesting. That is very interesting. And I want to go with this theory um, if, that Krakoa and Xavier are, as you put it, live editing what's going down. Um, for all we know, from the spectator's point of view, Apocalypse's killing blow might have looked like him bathing Melody in light or flowers or something beautiful, right? Maybe they didn't see any pain or even see the death. There's almost got to be some measure of widespread mind control at play here. Uh, otherwise, the Crucible might be our Rubicon here, right? Um, I can't think of any organic and unforced sort of way to walk this back. Unless, of course, we're not seeing what they're seeing. I can live with Xavier being a, a control freak and a mind wiper. And an abuser of power. That's nothing new. But everybody else? I mean, like Storm's there. Jean's there. Scott's there. Nightcrawler's there. Strong guy's there. I mean, there's so many people there. And it's... It seems like it's a drawn line right there. If if they're actually seeing someone run through or hacked into pieces by a giant sword... Yeah, that's... Mm. And I know I've been, I've been going on about Crucible ever since we read it, but it's it's a pretty big deal. Definitely a big deal. Damien continues. This issue really is a big one. It opens up with it opens up so many questions, and by putting them in Kurt's mouth, it shows that they're deliberately being highlighted and implies that Hickman has answers. You finished your review by imploring anyone who is following X-Labs but not buying the books to go out and buy this one. I would concur, but it also highlights part of the reason I dropped X-Men a couple of issues later. I realized that there are key issues like 6 and 7, and a lot of other stories that you can safely skip. I knew that I would hear about these key issues through social media, so I could drop the book and just pick up the issues I hear are unmissable. Of course, this didn't last very long as I came back with X of 10s, which grabbed me enough so that I've bought all 16 issues so far. And I think I mentioned uh, a few episodes back that I would have loved if they continued the old Hox Pox reading order way of telling the reader which books were unmissable. Like, 
what was it, uh, House of X2, House of X5, and Powers of X6, they were all highlighted in red on our, on our little checklist, right? And those are the ones that we call the shoe drop issues. The can't miss, and you have to see these. These are the ones, if you don't read anything else, read these. And uh, I think it would have been cool if they kept that up. Um, I think, I'm pretty sure the next red-highlighted book in our reading lists is actually X of Swords creation, so it's a way off. And I totally get why they wouldn't do this. <laughs> and I can appreciate them not wanting to make it seem as though eh, some of the books are lesser in comparison to others. But I think it would have been helpful for those who aren't quite as obsessive as to keep up with, you know, all of them. <laughs> uh, I think uh, it would be a really cool way to signify that these were the, the biggies. Um... And, you know, maybe that's a qualifier we can start to use here on the show. We could talk about whether or not a given issue is a red issue, you know, uh, like Excalibur number nine. I would suggest that this is not a red issue. This is not a red highlighted issue. This is one you could probably skip. Uh, Damien continues. Ultimately, it comes back to what you said during the feedback. No matter how often I give up on the X-Men, I'm always primed to jump back on. And yeah, that's in our that's in our DNA at this point, my friend. <laughs> Definitely, uh, I walked away from the X books and, and comics in general for the first time back in 1995, and I did so cold turkey, and I, I was just done, 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 done. And I've told this story before, probably way too many times. I just couldn't deal with willy nilly price hikes and gimmick covers. And despite the fact that I still had a whole lot of affection for the characters. I just couldn't justify the frustration of trying to keep up with everything. I'm an all-or-nothing guy, so I need everything or nothing. And at a time where gimmick covers and gimmick pricing were just happening constantly, I had to stop. And and when I left the shop that day, the uh, the owner, he's like, he told me, uh, he's like, oh, you'll be back. And I was like, no way, man, I'm done. He's like, no, 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 you always come back. And, uh, you know, a quarter century later, and uh, a dude couldn't have been more right if his life depended on it. So I think it's uh, definitely, it's it's in our DNA at this point. But uh, thank you so much for, for your very thoughtful message on a huge, huge issue of, uh, of X-Men there. Thank you. Uh, next, we got something from our friend Ed, who uh, is giving us some news on some fallout regarding X-Men plus Fantastic Four. Now, he sent me a link from CBR regarding our friend Franklin. Uh, Franklin Richards, of course, and a recent revelation that dropped in Fantastic Four number 26 by Dan Slott and R.B. Silva. Spoilers, by the way. I'll give a few seconds before, uh, in case you want to skip ahead about a minute, minute and a half. Uh, we learned in Fantastic Four number 26 that not only is Franklin Richards not an Omega-level mutant, but he was never even a mutant in the first place. Now, in the issue, Professor X says the following. You are not a mutant, and according to Cerebro, you have never been one. As a child, you dreamed of being different, special. Without intending to, you used your cosmic powers to alter every cell in your own body till it appeared as if you, ha- if you possessed the X gene. He then tells the boy that he's no longer welcome on Krakoa. Which is pretty interesting, uh, though, not going to lie, more than a little bit disappointing. Um, 
And also, Charles' use of the word till instead of until kind of weirded me out. <laughs> he said, you know, to alter every cell in your own body till it appeared. A little casual for old Chuck there. But uh, but thank you for sending that, Ed. That's a very interesting thing. And, uh, you know, it is a way of solving a problem, I guess. I guess maybe... Maybe the folks at Marvel thought the Franklin as a mutant thing was a problem that needed solving. And so they did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it. I guess it's a, yeah, you, can, you, can you really miss what you never had, right? I guess it's one of those sort of things. But, uh, but definitely very interesting information. Thank you for sharing it uh, with me uh, today. Next, we have, uh, we have something from our friend Mark. Green Lantern HG regarding X-Men number 8. He says, another great episode, Chris. The Brood is one of my favorite ex-villains, but not when they're mixed with the Shi'ar. I would have loved a little more exploration on the Brood, but by now, I think it would be a lot like Aliens, so I don't think it would work. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. And uh, I think I read somewhere that Marvel actually now has the rights to the Aliens franchise. Uh, So, yeah, using the Brood might be a little dicey moving forward. You know, I, I'm pretty sure uh, the covers that I've seen have been Wolverine and uh, and like the the Geiger aliens. You know, so I wonder maybe the Brood will take a back seat for a little bit. Maybe they'll have to. Don't know. Maybe the Brood will. Maybe the Brood will breed with the aliens, and we'll we'll get something altogether different. But uh, I I also enjoy the Brood um, in in small doses, uh, though when it's all tangled up with the Shi'ar, ugh. I think I could de- I could do with a Shi'ar story every now and again, but to this point, it's been like nothing but. It's way too much Shi'ar stuff. But uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, next, we have something from our friend Evan, who just finished reading X-Force Book 1. And he did so uh, via Hoopla, and that's a uh, digital library service where if you're... You know, local physical library has an uh, has a an arrangement with Hoopla. You can you can read a whole bunch of stuff for free. And uh, I believe X Force was the one holdout from the first you know the first run of the Dawn of X books. So now I think you can read everything at least for the first arcs of Dawn of X. And I'm pretty sure Hoxbox is there too, if you do have a Hoopla account and if your local library is uh, is part of that program. So if there's anything you wanted to catch up on, dang. It's there for you. Now he says, Finish the X-Force trade, the first six issues. It's dark, of course, but much more understandable than Fallen Angels, where they didn't really wrestle with the violence, just agreed to try not to kill mind-controlled kids. That may be an oversimplification, but that's how I remember it. I wouldn't say that's an oversimplification. That was basically Fallen Angels. (laughs) I was glad at least somebody remembered the Kill No Man law, even if they didn't view it as much more than a suggestion. I've enjoyed Quentin Quire since the Wolverine and the X-Men days, and I think he was written well and in character. I like Wolverine as the voice of reason in issue two. I believe countering Magneto's mutants are the new gods philosophy. While Logan never hesitates to dish out brutality, I like it when writers show that he doesn't do so with glee and realizes that there's a cost. I could have done without a lot of the graphic violence, though it made sense in Domino's case with what had been done to her. Yes, definitely. Um, it is dark. It is very dark. Um, I, I I remember, boy, when was it? Probably, ah, probably twenty ten ish, 
where they put out a run of X-Force where the artist on it was Clayton Crane, which was brutally dark. It looked like, you know, death metal album covers. It was just scary dark. And uh, this isn't quite as dark as that, but it's definitely darker than everything else going in uh, in the Dawn of X uh, world here. It is darker subject matter, um, which is something we've talked about before, like... Like, is this what people think of when they think of X-Force? It's like, if it's X-Force, it has to be dark. I don't know that I completely agree with that. I don't know that I completely disagree with it either, but it's definitely the tone they're going with here. Now, Domino being skinned, I mean, that's uh, that's pretty brutal. But, uh, yeah, I guess you gotta, you gotta depict it that way, huh? Uh, D- uh, Evan continues... I miss the fun-loving beast, but I thought the series so far did a good job of presenting the quandaries a government can find itself in when protecting the nation, even if I don't agree with some of their decisions. I mean, these are sci-fi superhero comics. There's always an alternative to killing, but that wasn't the story they were trying to tell. I, too, miss the fun-loving beast. (laughs) Definitely. It's something we've talked about a lot. Um, And yeah, you know, one thing that I don't know that I've mentioned... Is uh, is you're you're right here. Um, this is uh, I remember I was working uh, for I was a quality assurance and logistics manager for a uh, for a trucking company, and we were building onto we had this like little like aluminum building that was that's been in it's been there for decades you know just sitting there, and we wanted to break it up into offices. And so we built, we put up walls, basically. And I have absolutely no construction experience. <laughs> None. Um, I, I still have a toolbox I built when I was a Cub Scout, but uh, I wouldn't want to put tools in it because it probably wouldn't hold it. But uh, I remember we put up those walls and uh, one of the managers came in and uh, from, from the corporate office and he was he's like, there was a lot of learning in that wall. Because, it, you know, it was a wall. It was functionally a wall. It's as in it separated one room from another. And it was mostly, you know, it was straight. And it served its purpose. We could fit a door on there. And it was a wall. But it wasn't perfect. Because it was people who have never built walls before building a wall. When we look at Krakoa, these are people who have never built nations before building a nation. They have, you know, their own Senate. They have their own CIA and X-Force. They've never had this before. So I can definitely appreciate the fact that they're going to be making some decisions that aren't going to always land, and they're not always going to be the best decisions. So I do agree. Um, and that's something I never really considered before your message, that these uh, these goof-ups, or maybe not so much goof-ups, but these just... Uh, more controversial decisions, um, less safe decisions, they could be intentional, you know, to show us that this is, that there's a lot of learning in that island, right? I mean, it stands to reason. But uh, thank you so much for uh, for sharing your thoughts, Evan. And we talked a little bit, uh, Evan and I, earlier today, and he was, he was uh, questioning if it was cool to send in discussions of older issues. And I was like, yes, please do. Please do, and that goes to everybody. You know, if uh, if you just discovered this show, or if you're just popping in on random episodes, and there's something you read that you want to discuss, 
feel feel free and welcome to share your thoughts with me and uh and we'll discuss them here and uh that's part of probably the funnest part of this uh of this little gig that uh that we're doing here it's is sharing our thoughts and uh bouncing ideas off one another and have on our having our own little you know book club in our corner of the of the internet here so any thoughts on any books please feel free uh to uh to send them my way but uh we're gonna wrap up with uh, something from our friend Jeremiah. Now, he just read X-Force number one and Fallen Angels number one. And he says, X-Force, two thumbs up on the story. The art was good, not great. Fallen Angels, ouch. I didn't enjoy that one very much. It was not helped by the fact that I do not know what the story is with Psylocke and Betsy Braddock being two different people. Gotta, Gotta put your podcast on this afternoon to get the full rundown. And thank you, Jeremiah. I'm I'm so happy you're still following along here, and uh, I'm happy you made it through all the number ones here, including Fallen Angels. Because, uh, yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think "ouch" is a good way to put it. <laughs> it's I, you know, uh, just uh, in last episode we got an email from our friend Andrew about some of the things he doesn't like about this run, right? What we've yet to get here on this show is an email from anyone talking about how much they like Fallen Angels. So if you're out there, if you're out there, please let me know what it is you like about it. Maybe I'll come around. You never know. Maybe we'll just have a fun discussion. But, uh, yeah, Fallen Angels is, I mean, we've said it before. It's like, how did this get published? How did it go six issues? How did we talk about six issues? We spent, we probably spent three hours talking about Fallen Angels. I'm not sure it took three hours to write Fallen Angels, and we spent that time talking about it. Ugh. Uh, X-Force, though. That first issue of X-Force is really something. It's uh, very, very strong, and it makes a statement in that, uh, I mean, the assassination is seen at the end. I could, I, I wouldn't have bet that we'd see anything like that. So uh, definitely an eye-opener, definitely a thinker. Definitely one that makes your mind just race with the possibilities and the problems that uh, the X-Men might be facing with a, you know, a dead leader who we don't know if he can come back. At least then we didn't know. But uh, no, it's very, very fun. And I I almost envy you (laughs) not knowing how it all turns out because, uh, yeah, it kind of just turns out. But thank you so much, Jeremiah. It's always nice hearing from you, and thank you everybody for uh, for writing in and uh, and taking the time out of your days to uh, to engage with this little program. Now, of course, if anybody would like to reach out, it's easy to do so. You can reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at Gmail dot com. You can find show notes and blog posts over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. There's also xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. You can talk to us about all sorts of X-Men stuff over on Facebook at 90s X-Men, and the entire audio archives of the Chris and Reggie channel is ready for your waiting ears at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find it on any place you you usually find noise. So uh, I guess if you're listening to the show, you're... You already know that. But uh, that is where we'll put a pin in it for today. Uh, next, we'll be talking about X-Force number 9. And uh, looking forward to that. I think I'm, you know it's been a couple of very strong issues of X-Force. I hope this keeps up the trend. But that's it for today. One more giant thank you to everyone for sharing your time. And as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, welcome to December and uh, the 75th episode of X-Lapsed. Uh, today is the three-month uh, month anniversary, I guess. Uh, started this program on September 1st, and here we are on December 1st. So, pretty crazy, and it's uh, it's interesting how quickly time goes by when you're, you know, not paying attention. But uh, today... We have another double-digit book here. We're going to bring Excalibur Volume 4 into the double digits with issue number 10. Uh, This had a June 2020 cover date, and uh, let's get right on into it here. The story is called... uh, I'm never never very good when we have X's in titles here. It's either verse 10 or verse X. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's verse 10s, considering everything we've seen so far. But it's verse 10, A Crooked World, written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Arshanaiga, letters, VCs, Corey Petit, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits, Bisa white Sobolski, cover price $3.99, and went on sale June 10th of 2020. So it's an interesting one because, uh, of course, this is after the uh, big shutdown this spring. So we're having a book that's cover dated in June that actually hits shelves in June. Uh, that's pretty interesting, uh, at least if you ask me. But if we open this sucker up here, we open with our roll call. And today we're going to be focusing on Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Shogo, Betsy Britton, and Pete Wisdom, followed by a double-page spread of credits. Then an info page, which looks like a very low-effort propaganda poster, which is kind of a shame, because I think this could look really cool if they weren't going for the minimalist Dawn of X info page look. Jason would talk about how he likes it when the info pages look like something that he'd like to own, and uh, I feel like... This could have been one of those, but eh, they, they just went the info page route here. And it's a flyer that is preparing London for an all-out war with Krakoa. And it's actually really cool, but could have been just so much cooler. One thing on this poster that's probably worth mentioning is the phrase protect and survive, which has almost got to be a reference to these informational pamphlets and PSAs from the late 70s that were created to teach, you know, British folks what to do in the event of a nuclear attack. I tell you what, these videos are available on YouTube here. Um, easy to find. And they are really, really weird. They're almost surreal, uh, especially being all the years that we are removed from that. Uh, these PSAs were created by uh, Richard Taylor Cartoons, and uh, I couldn't imagine what I would have thought had I seen them as a child. I'll try to remember to link to a uh, Protect and Survive compilation in the show notes. Uh, even if even if you just take a quick peek, I'd say it's worth your time just for how like low-key horrifying it is. It's very, very weird. Um, I'd actually plan to use Protect and Survive as a hook for an episode of the Cosmic Treadmill. Um, sometimes we would create entire episodes around a hook. The Hook, if you're not familiar with the Cosmic Treadmill, was like our ending segment, where we would sort of kind of tie whatever it was we were reading into some sort of a real-life thing, or a cultural thing, or just maybe another fictional thing. 
In this case, uh, we were going to cover a uh, book called When the Wind Blows by Raymond Briggs, which is about an elderly couple that use some of the protect and survive methods uh, after a nuclear attack. They're in London, I believe, and uh, the attack is from the Soviet Union. And uh, we were going to do that purely to facilitate the connection and have the ability to talk about Protect and Survive. Uh, We were also going to uh, have a discussion about the BBC film Threads from the 80s, which deals with some very, very horrifying and sobering fallout from a nuclear attack. So, So, yeah, I guess even if this page just said Protect and Survive, I'd probably find myself really digging it. Uh, If there's anyone out there who wants to talk about Protect and Survive and Threads, Please let me know, as I'd be down for that. Okay, so comics, right? We're here for comics. Let's do some more comics. We're in London, where the streets are just being bombarded with missiles and whatnot. Betsy Britton and her crew are also on the street, wondering where this airstrike is coming from. They suddenly find themselves attacked by the military. Betsy tries to reason with them in the name of queen and country. These soldiers ain't buying none of that, and they they inform her that they are to shoot Krakoans on sight. Richter splits the earth to buy Excalibur some time, and so they go running to the nearest Krakoan gateway. What they find instead are Jean Grey and Professor X parade floats being burned in effigy and a destroyed portal. And it's at this point I want to paraphrase our the theme song for this very program and say, well, how did we get here? Um, I actually had to double-check the cover to make sure I didn't accidentally pull Excalibur number 11 out of the box instead of number 10. Because, yeah, this, uh, this sure feels like we're at a massive disadvantage here, doesn't it? When I saw this book was indeed number 10, I immediately assumed that I goofed up the episode numbering again, and I'd forgotten to cover Excalibur number 9. So, I, I was reading this in bed, I had to pull my ass out of bed to run across the house to the recording room so I could double-check... Exactly what we covered last time we talked Excalibur. And no, we're exactly where we're supposed to be. We did cover Excalibur number 9, and this is Excalibur number 10. But how, how in the hell did we get here? Okay, so Betsy, she goes to plant another gateway seed, to which Richter says it ain't gonna work. He already tried that. You see, London has been warded against mutant powers, perhaps the work of a certain group of LARPers. Rogue suggests that they bug out to Otherworld, but Betsy ain't able to, able to pull the body slide. Gambit suggests that maybe they just steal a boat and get the hell off the island. To which Betsy assures him that if Britain, England, the UK, whatever, wherever we are, is indeed at war, there won't be a single boat available for them to take. Just then, an airship flies overhead, piloted by... Call me Kate? Hmm, okay. I suppose this could be an opportunity for me to joke about how little communication seems to happen between our Dawn of X books, and that uh, maybe Teeny Howard is unaware Kitty died like four, five, six months ago, but this is really just a hint that things aren't exactly what they appear to be. Whatever the case, Excalibur gets on the boat. Betsy and Kitty chat for a bit, and we learn that the missiles hitting London are indeed Krakoan in origin, but the whole thing's a setup, right? It's gotta be. All mutants have been called back to the island to reconnoiter, and that's exactly where Kitty intends to bring Excalibur. Betsy asks how this ship is able to fly, to which we see that it's being controlled by Rachel in her old hound getup, which is odd, but pretty neat. Kitty explains that she went to the lighthouse first, in hopes that Excalibur would be there, only, you know, they weren't. Pete Wisdom, however, was. 
and now he's very, very dead. Betsy decides that she's got to get back to the lighthouse, but Kitty has her orders. Everyone is to head back to Krakoa. Betsy ain't taking no for an answer and threatens to just fly there herself if Captain Kitty won't oblige. And so, to the lighthouse they go. And it's here where things begin to clear up just a little bit. We see that this whole scene is a reality warp, courtesy of that weirdo, Jamie Braddock. A pocket reality, if you will, probably... So Jamie can explain how the Legion of Superheroes got their inspiration from Superboy, even though Clark Kent never was Superboy, right? Right, maybe? I don't know. It's a pocket reality that that much we know for the moment. Now Jamie has this whole world in his hands, literally. It's all swirling in a red orb, and he stood before a table that Morgan Le Fay is strapped to, so he's probably in Apocalypse's lab. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the point of this is. Uh, Jamie wants to start a war, I guess. Uh, He also seems to want to rebuild the Captain Britain Corps. I don't know. I'm kind of lost here, though in fairness, I'm also kind of dense. Now, back in the pocket reality, which is designated by the Marvel Wiki as being Earth TRN 839, Betsy is trying to protect the lighthouse from an assumedly Krakoan missile blast. I gotta say, I'm not a fan of Gambit referring to Betsy as Capitan. I feel like they've known each other a little too long to be quite this formal. Anyway, Gambit is able to absorb the energy from this missile, which all but clarifies that they are, in fact, not physical missiles, and thereby probably not Krakoan in origin, just made to look that way. Betsy puts two and two together and realizes that her weirdo brother has concocted this entire situation. Jubilee wonders what might be next, since, you know, Jamie has walled himself off in other worlds, starting wars and whatnot. Before she can really get too much of a thought out, she's speared through the shoulder by a unicorn's horn. And we pan back and see that, yes, this was an actual unicorn horn attached to an actual unicorn being ridden by that weirdo, Jamie Braddock. Betsy asks what the game is here, what's going on? To which that weirdo compares this concocted conflict between Britain and Krakoa with some sort of internalized dissonance that Betsy herself might be dealing with. You know, questions like, where does she belong? Krakoa as a mutant, or Britain as its captain? And it's actually quite an interesting concept. I really, really dig it. Uh, Betsy demands to be taken back to reality, to which Jamie informs her that this is her reality. You see, he just made her. His Betsy, the real one, she's still in Otherworld where we left her last issue. So this fake TRN-839 Betsy is who Jamie intended to reboot the Captain Britain Corps with? Maybe? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Betsy then uh, psychically assaults her weirdo brother, but is unfortunately taken out by an incoming missile strike, so uh, I guess she's dead. As she lies there, her four teammates rush over to her. Reality begins to shatter, which even affects the panel borders, which looks really cool. Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, and Richter then all touch Betsy's amulet and find themselves transformed into all-new Captain Britons. You know, the ones we saw in last issue's cliffhanger. Now we wrap up at the Citadel, where Saturnine declares that these new Captain Britons are pretenders. She orders her fleet of priestesses to kill them, and, well, that's where we leave it for today. We do get an info page, which covers the incursion of reality via that weirdo Jamie Braddock. Uh, how there were, you know, two Betsies, and how the pocket one led to there being four new Captain Britons, I think. Yeah, that's that's where we leave it. Uh, next episode, 
Welcome to the double digits, New Mutants number 10. But let's talk about this. Let's try to make sense of this here. Uh, I should probably start by saying I, uh, I shouldn't have liked this. I really, really shouldn't have. It goes against pretty much anything I want to see in an X-book. But I really enjoyed it. Uh, and maybe I ought to take my temperature or something. This feels all sorts of wrong. Um, I just felt like this was a lot of fun. Um, I hope that the otherworldliness that we're in for with X of Tens is more like this, and not so much like the first six or so issues of this volume that we saw. If I gotta pick one, it's definitely gonna be this. I will say that the introductory portion of this issue, this issue was perhaps a little too far off from where we left things last issue. And I mean, this is no fault of anybody's, but you got to consider that this is compounded by the fact that it was almost three months since the last issue came out. So, I mean, Excalibur number nine came out in March. Now we're in June. Again, not a fault of the book itself or the creative team, but maybe something Marvel could have considered. Of course, nobody's going to care when they read it in trade, which is, like it or not, what the industry is banking on nowadays anyway, but... For the month-to-month and week-to-week reader, this is a little bit jarring. Now, despite the fact that the opening bit was so jarring that I actually had to dig through long boxes, pull myself out of bed to dig through long boxes to make sure we didn't skip an issue, like I said, I, I, I did quite like it. But, you know, while I'm picking nits, one more thing, one more thing. Remember when we looked at Marauders number 9 and we saw that fake-out death of Pyro and Emma Frost? And when we saw that, I said that, uh, you know, I totally bought it because mutant deaths are happening at such a staggering rate these days. And there seems to be very little in the way of consequence. So, you know, there was absolutely no doubt in my mind that Emmett and Pyro were dead and they'd probably be back in a few pages anyway. Well, with this issue of Excalibur, we saw Kitty Pride show up, right? Now, my first assumption wasn't the obvious fact that things weren't exactly as they seemed. Instead, I legitimately thought that we were either being told the story out of order, and, you know, as we've seen many times to this point in Dawn of X-Books, where it's like, we don't know where certain stories are happening, or maybe that word hadn't made it to Teeny Howard that Kitty was killed off six months before this issue came out. That's not a good thing, though it might just be a Chris thing. There certainly is a pattern of behavior here, though, that I don't know that we should uh, ignore. You know, these... These stories aren't quite as tightly knit as perhaps they could be. So, uh, yeah, I said I enjoyed this, didn't I? So let's start saying nice things about it. Uh, We could start with the art, which was awesome as always. I really dig these Captain Britain core designs that the entire main cast gets. Uh, I really like uh, Jubilee's Union Jack shades. They're particularly cool. I like the internalized struggle of Betsy here, having two homes and seeing that standing by either one is going to put the other one out a bit. So she's Krakoan and British by birth. It's a very interesting angle. Um, I mean, also taking into account that she's the only Captain Britain left, and she doesn't even live there. So you got to wonder how the British citizens view this sort of a thing here. Is she a traitor? Is she, le- is she a lesser captain than her brother was, or anybody in the Corps, for, for that matter? It's very interesting. A lot of meat on that bone. Uh, the kitty scene was fun. Everything made sense. Um, I mean, a flying ship is a bit fantastical, right? But 
When we discover that it's only flying because Rachel's controlling it, we can accept it because we understand the context. I, I think this is actually some pretty deft storytelling because it zigged when I was totally expecting it to zag, you know? We were in this surreality, right? We didn't know what was what, which way was up. And then we see an airship and it's like, okay, I'm done. I can't suspend my disbelief anymore. But then we get on board it and we see that it's Rachel controlling it. And that brings you back into the story because it makes it makes enough sense. Uh, you know, we understand what these characters are able to do. So suddenly a flying ship is a little bit less surreal than it would have been otherwise. So I was expecting it to go one way. It went another that bought me just a few more panels of buying into the story. And then they dropped the, the hammer on us. So this was pretty cool. I'm not ecstatic to see that we're going to be dealing with Saturnine next issue. But, I mean, we've still got one more issue to go before we start seeing, you know, the road to X of Swords branding on these comics. So I suppose it stands to reason that this story would have to be stretched out just a little bit more. Overall, this was probably not my favorite issue of Excalibur so far, but it might be the one I've had the most fun with. So I I think uh, this is a net positive. I give it a thumbs up. This is one that uh, you should check out. This was a fun, fun time. But that's all I got to say about Excalibur number 10. But before we go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Force number 9. He says, this issue blew me away. It's the first acknowledgement that someone is altering the Resurrectees. Domino may not realize that she's been altered against her will, but the other characters are noticing. My money is that it's Beast as the leader of X-Force who is telling Xavier or the Five that Domino wants her trauma removed. I can't imagine that Xavier is actually fully aware of what X-Force has been doing. This might also explain why Jean is not involved with this mission. Maybe Beast wants to keep this secret from the Quiet Council. And I think you're absolutely onto something here uh, in suggesting that Beast might... You know, might just have the most to lose should some of the X-Force secrets begin to leak out. Um, this is actually some uncharacteristically subtle storytelling. And I, and I wonder if we're going to start seeing Gene and Sage left off of more X-Force missions going forward. Because, you know, he doesn't want these things getting to the Quiet Council and he doesn't want them getting back to Xavier. Um, now, I, I would say that this is definitely a Dawn of X bombshell moment in that it confirmed some of our suspicions about the protocol process. I mean, we've been theorizing for the past 75-ish episodes here. So we're getting answers, or we're at least getting... We're getting some of our suspicions just confirmed. Um, we now have actual confirmation that alterations can occur. Resurrectees can be, for lack of a better term, rolled back to a more productive or less traumatized version of themselves. And this might open up almost too many story possibilities, doesn't it? Um, It makes me wonder if, should this era continue for a few years, just how recognizable some of these characters will even be um, from, you know, before Hoxpox. It's very, very interesting uh, how, how we are just building things from the ground up in a way where it's like, okay, well, that element doesn't work, so let's get rid of it. So it's very interesting. It also makes me wonder about a book like Hellions, because should a Hellion die in battle, will they be resurrected as exactly the same as they were before death? Or will they be altered to make them more productive and less dangerous? 
You know, I, I know I joked about it before, but is Hellions like a literal suicide squad? Like, is this just a way to uh, put these characters into extremely dangerous situations wherein they die? You know, and then they could be brought back as more productive and less dangerous. And uh, all without the Quiet Council having to actually invoke a death penalty, right? Because how hard would it be to just take the Orphan Maker and put an put a, put a adamantium claw through his skull? Then grow him again in the in the uh, in the hatchery as something a little bit less dangerous. It feels like that could be something that could come down the pike eventually. But here we are with Hellions, where these characters might be seen as expendable because there's there's more value in their resurrection than there is in their current state. Just from some food for thought that uh, now I can't stop thinking about. So <laughs> it's a. Uh, it's interesting. It's very interesting, especially in light of everything we're seeing here in uh, X-Force number 9 uh, as, as it pertains to the, the altered resurrections. It's uh, a lot to chew on. A lot to chew on. Uh, Damien continues with, It's interesting to me that the mutant night spot is launched in X-Force. It feels like more of a New Mutants kind of event. Joshua Kassara is really earning his place on the new, on the new Young Guns promotion here. He's topping himself every issue and is capable of anything. He is equally at home with horrific body horror as he is with a tiki bar. He is just fantastic. And yeah, I too was uh, very surprised to see the Green Lagoon here. Uh, like you, I, I assumed that this would be a little aside in a lighter book. Um, and I'm, I think the first time we heard about it was in Excalibur when Betsy gave Rachel the Warwolf puppy. So I think I was just assuming we'd see it in Excalibur or maybe in X-Factor, since that was kind of a plug for Rachel going into X-Factor. So when I saw it in X-Force, it was very, very strange. And uh, you're, you're right here. Kassara's work here is wonderful. Um, I love the way he made everybody fit, disparate sizes and all. I really can't get over just how hulkingly huge he depicted Apocalypse as being, and it just looked amazing. Looked, I've never seen... Such a disparity in the sizes, but it, it made so much sense. It was just so cool looking. And I, I don't follow the news or anything, so I didn't realize they were still doing a Young Guns promotion. Uh, I think I stopped paying attention to those when they tried passing off uh, John Romita Jr. as a Young Gun back around 2007, 2008, when he was like 60. <laughs> and I don't know. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on a very, very pivotal issue in this uh, in this Dawn of X lineup here. Definitely a red book, in my opinion. Here, a lot of a lot of very good stuff coming out of that one. Uh, next, we have Andrew Franklin telling us why he stopped reading the X Men. This was a question I posed a few episodes ago, where I uh, we talked about how. One of the common questions is, how did you discover the X-Men? Why did you stick with the X-Men? What made you pick the X-Men? And something we don't talk about so much is, why'd you leave? You know, what, what, was it, what was it that made you walk away? You know, was it an internal thing, an external thing? Was it a book thing? Was it a creator thing? And uh, it's an interesting question, I think. And Andrew here is going to tell us why he did. He says... This was a hard question for me to answer, to find an answer to because the truth is I don't actually remember why exactly I stopped reading X-Men. The first time I really stepped away was right after the Age of Apocalypse. I had been reading all of X-Men Volume 2 and Uncanny at the time and was already de- 
diving deep into the back issues and was getting into Generation X, and I remember being very excited that Cannonball was finally going to get his due and become an actual member of the X-Men. Then I read Uncanny X-Men number 322, the issue where Juggernaut gets jobbed by a mysterious new villain called Onslaught, and I saw maybe for the first time the unending cycle of event after event, or building up to the next new threat, right after the last one, which was right after the last, and so on and so on. And it fatigued me. I continued to read Generation X for a while, but stop- I stopped caring about new X-Men comics for a long time. I was very much into Claremont and kept up my X-Fandom through back issues. I was also an avid reader of Wizards, so I kind of kept aware of what was happening there. I came back in after the 12, not sad I skipped that, when Cyclops was taken over by Apocalypse, if you remember that, but I wasn't fully back until my hero Claremont returned. Well, sorry about that Claremont run. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned something I, uh, that I feel very strongly about. And that is, uh, you know, promotions in comics. Uh, like, literal, like, job promotions inside the comics here. Because I thought it was really cool when Cannonball got promoted from X-Force to the X-Men proper. It gave the team this feeling of, like, prestige. You know, something that, you know, good mutants could aspire toward. And I feel like that's an element that's missing these days, like, big time. And not just in the X-Men, either. Um, like, uh... If we go past a uh, post-Hero's Return, uh, Avengers Volume 3, we had Justice and Firestar promoted from the New Warriors to the Avengers. Felt like a big deal. You know, that's something that characters could be proud of. You know, now they're part of the big leagues here. Nowadays, I mean, who isn't a friggin' Avenger? And what mutant isn't an X-Man? This was actually one of my bigger problems with the uh, New 52 over at uh, DC, because they launched Justice League with Cyborg as a founding member. But to me, Cyborg is a Teen Titan who, just before the New 52, during the Brightest Day cross-event, he was promoted to the Justice League. And when it happened, it meant something. It felt important because it felt like a graduation, a validation, just an attaboy. You know, you've made it this far, welcome to the big leagues, you know? And hell, most of the Brightest Day era Justice League was graduated Titans. Uh, Dick Grayson was Batman. We had Wally West, Donna Troy, and Vic. It just felt like the next logical evolution of the team and those characters. And what's more, it felt earned. Nowadays, I I mean, what what does it take to be a member of an elite team? Jack. Nothing. I mean, Smasher, Squirrel Girl, and friggin' Slapstick have Avengers ID cards. Where's the prestige in that? If everybody's an Avenger, then who gives a crap, you know? Um, On to event fatigue. Definitely a real thing, and I felt similarly to you. Um, That first issue back in the Prime X-Men books where Juggernaut was punched across the country by whatever the hell Onslaught was originally intended to be, yeah, not my favorite. Um... I remember being very excited for Age of Apocalypse to be over because I wanted I wanted things to get back to normal, right? But after Age of Apocalypse, I had this weird, like, day-after-Christmas feeling. You know what I mean? Like, where you were looking forward to something for so long, then it's just over and done with, and we're on to the next thing. It was kind of uncharacteristic for Lobdell to hit the ground running like this without giving us all a moment to catch our breaths and reconnect with our characters. 
What's more, when he wrote this, Lobdell didn't even have the first clue what Onslaught was going to be, so it was just some stunt storytelling uh, that he was hoping to make sense of along the way. I've actually got a quote here from uh, Scott Lobdell from uh, Comics Creators on X-Men from Titan Books. Uh, Lobdell says, We had just come off the event-style Age of Apocalypse storyline and had decided to start doing stories that focused more on individual characters. All the X-Men creative people gathered for a big conference, and Bob Harris basically said to us, If you could do any story, what story would you do? I seem to remember that Warren Ellis said that he would like to do a story where the members of Excalibur team just sat around and drank beer at a pub, but he knew Bob would never let him do that story. Bob told him he could do that story. When Bob got to me, I said I wanted to do a story where the X-Men are at home and they suddenly hear a whistling sound. They run out to the front yard and see a massive object flying through the air. It hits the ground in flames and skids the length of a football field. As the dust settles, everyone runs up and sees that it's Juggernaut. He manages to utter just one word before passing out, and that word is Onslaught. Everybody in the room was really intrigued, and they demanded to know who Onslaught was. I told him I had no idea, but I just thought it was a cool way to open a story. Imagine someone so strong they could hurl Juggernaut across the sky. I ended up doing that opening sequence, but I still didn't know who Onslaught was. Now, when Lobdell was asked... For a little clarification on creating a character that he didn't actually know anything about, he would say, That's how I usually work. Some guys work out every last detail up front, but I tend to unwind my ideas slowly and just follow a character or a storyline. I feel like I'm somebody who has a clothesline that's all knotted up, and I follow the line until I get to the end. Hopefully, a story or a character will reveal itself by the time I get there. So yeah, that's as much thought was put into Onslaught. At least, you know, straight out the gate. Uh, yet you are also lucky that you skipped the 12, because that was a massive letdown. And I totally remember Cyclops being taken over as Apocalypse's host, which would actually lead to a miniseries that incoming Marvel president Bill Jemis declared as being the sort of story Marvel shouldn't be telling. He did this while it was coming out, by the way. So uh, it was probably seen as a huge vote of confidence for, uh, for Joseph Harris, who was writing the thing. So... There you go. Uh, Andrew continues. I continued reading all the way through the Morrison-Austin run. And as an aside, Morrison is one of my favorite comics creators, and I was huge into him at the time. And at first, I did not like his run. To me, he clearly didn't care about past continuity or characterization, and this gave me great anxiety. My favorite author was on my favorite superhero team and was just tearing it apart. I eventually calmed down and came around to it, but I tell you this because even though I really, I don't really like the current direction, I know that I might start to come around. And after Morrison left, I just stopped, and I really don't remember why. I wasn't mad he was leaving, and I didn't have any negative opinions about the incoming creative teams. I think I was just tired of the X-Men at that point. For a long while, I was reading mostly Vertigo books because I was a cool, edgy teen, and I think X-Men just fell victim to ha my having to choose which comics to spend my little amount of spending money on. Even Havoc's prominence during the time wasn't enough to keep me around. And yeah, Morrison did feel a bit wibbly when it came to continuity, at least early on, though he did claim that he read every single X-Men book before starting the project. And uh, that's usually what he does. I know when he when he took over the Batman books, um, he said he read every single Batman comic from you know 1939 or whatever it was. So uh, yeah, I, I usually that usually gives me 
you know, a chance to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, plus, the fact that he's also one of my favorites uh, is a pretty big help in that as well. I'll usually buy anything with his name on it, even if I <laughs> never get around to reading it. I- I've actually been buying his The Green Lantern series, and I haven't even cracked the cover on one yet. Uh, and I'm I'm actually still sitting on a stack of his Origin of Santa Claus issues that I haven't bothered to read, so Morrison will usually get a pass from me. And I'll, I'll usually pick up whatever has his name on it. And I didn't get into Vertigo books until I had, like, more disposable income. Because, for me, the X-Men came first. Everything else was a distant second. So I wasn't gonna... I wasn't gonna try anything if I could no longer afford the X-Men books. And I remember one of the very first times I visited a comic shop in Arizona. I went to the counter with a couple of X-Books. And the guy working there started making fun of me for reading X-Books instead of the Vertigo books. Which is... I mean, it's like, I'm just trying to give you money, dude <laughs> Why are you giving me a hard time? Uh, which, it's weird I think that's kind of Given me an odd impression Of Vertigo fandom uh, That I, I don't know that I've ever let go of But uh, Havoc, Havoc, yes Havoc was prominent during this run But uh, the way he was treated Might actually cure someone Of being a Havoc fan It wasn't, wasn't great uh, Andrew continues I did check back in for Deadly Genesis and hated it. And I remember around that time, Mike Carey was writing, or going to be writing, the X-Men. I loved Lucifer, his series for Vertigo, so this caught my attention. But this was when they were doing the fallout from Deadly Genesis with Vulcan and the Shi'ar, and I had no interest in that at all. So I guess that was really the the final nail in my X-Men buying coffin, Deadly Genesis. That's very interesting. That's very, very interesting. Um... It's been ages since I read Deadly Genesis, but I remember being a bit mixed on it back in the day because it felt very Marvel of the day to me. Uh, you know, that the Marvel chestnut of everything you thought you knew was wrong. You know, I felt like we were getting that an awful lot. I think if you were to scan in like every previews catalog for the past you know, 20 years and do like a control F for everything you thought you knew was wrong in the Marvel listings, your computer would break down because there would be just so damn many of them. This was very Bendis-like stunt writing, basically a stunt looking for a story. You know, I don't know that it was a story looking for, uh, you know, an event. It was more, hey, we have this, we have this stunt, write a story around it. Plus, they killed Banshee by sucking him into a jet engine or something. It's like, Really? At first, I mean, of course, we have to kill a Silver Age character Because if uh, everything you thought you knew was wrong is is rule one Rule two is kill a Silver Age character So first, we gotta do that Second, this is how we do it? We suck him into an airplane engine? Eh Um, I wasn't keen on the Vulcan reveal Though, according to upcoming solicitations We might be about to get ourselves an all-new, all-extreme Summers Brother now, Lord only knows how they're going to actually make that work, but uh, they are claiming that this uh, this new X-Men Legends series or whatever it is will be in continuity. So, who knows? <laughs> Maybe we'll be surprised. Um, now, Mike Carey, he did some good work on uh, X-Men, which turned into X-Men Legacy. He actually really worked some magic there, uh, using continuity to tell good stories. Uh, he even brought back my first ever X-Villain, friggin' Hazard. From X-Men Volume 2, Number 12 
Uh, the run that covered Vulcan and the Shi'ar, that was Ed Brubaker, the same guy who did Deadly Genesis. Uh, and he wrote like a 73-part story called The Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire that ran through like eight years of Uncanny. Um, I'd recommend checking out the Carrie stuff. Maybe not so much the Rise and Fall, but uh, the Carrie run was uh, was really good. Really paid tribute to a lot of the things that came before. So if you are interested in checking out some of that stuff, I would recommend it. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, Thanks for letting me ramble on until it's revealed that I'm just sentient bacteria make my next lapsed. And uh, ramble away. I mean, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, this was a lot of fun learning more about your ex-fandom. Don't, don't ever think you're talking too much. I am totally cool with uh, learning as much as I can. Uh, this is part of the fun. So thank you so much for, uh, for taking part in, the, uh, in my highly scientific survey on why people stopped reading the X-Men. Next, we have Jeremiah, who's sharing his thoughts on the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 2s. He says, Chris, I wrapped up my reading for the number two issues, and I'm listening to the last couple of podcasts now. I've already mentioned which books I liked and didn't, but I wanted to just share a little more here. All of the issues felt like number two issues. They moved the stories along pretty well across the board, but there was nothing quite so earth-shattering as the number one issues. This is to be expected, as now we're starting to really develop what is to come over the next couple, the several months would expect. The point is, they were good comics, but with the exception of X-Force number two, there was nothing that had me flipping pages wicked excited to see what happens next. Now, it's been a little bit since I read X-Force number two, but I remember uh, the first few issues of X-Force really liking except for some of the dialogue, because this was uh, this was very Percy dialogue, very forced stuff, very... Um very, like, pseudo-philosophical sort of, you know, college freshman sort of conversation here. And no disrespect to any potential college freshmen who are listening here. It's just, it felt very forced. Jeremiah continues with, uh, One of the things I like about all the comics is that they're sticking with the story continuity across all the issues. It isn't like you have to read each book, which is nice, but the shared timeline is nice to see, to see if you are reading them all. That being said, I thought with Professor X being killed in X-Force number one, I felt they should have had more repercussions or urgency about that fact across all of the number two issues, with the exception of New Mutants, maybe, because they're off in space. That's the only thing that I wanted to, that didn't happen. And yeah, totally agree. Um, that was one of the things that I was kind of concerned with, was... It's like, okay, well, the leader, you're a leader, and the guy who could bring everybody back is dead, and uh, they're dancing at Carousel, you know? Nobody seems to be all that concerned outside of, I think Magneto talked to Quanan about it in uh, Fallen Angels number two. I think that was like the only mention throughout those issues there. Very, very strange. And of course, X-Force number two, but... I, I thought that that should be a uh, an across-the-board sort of a record scratch sort of moment now that tightness uh, it's gonna go away <laughs> the uh the continuity is going to be a little bit wobbly um the books are gonna uh, the release dates and the way i'm covering them is probably not the order in which we're supposed to read them so as you're following along in the anthology books you're probably going to be reading them in a different order than i'll be covering them i know for a fact that that some of the things that we've covered are wildly out of order compared to the anthology trades. So, I mean, we'll, we'll do the best we can to keep everybody apprised, but uh, just a, a word of warning, I guess, that some of, our, some of our reading orders will not match up. 
Uh, Jeremiah continues with, I felt generally the same about these issues as I did the first ones. Some had better writing than others. The art was pretty good across the board, with X-Men and New Mutants being the standouts for me. Here is how I would rank each issue. His number one book of the number twos is X-Force number two, an exciting comic that really has me, that has me really wanting to see what happens next. Number two was New Mutants number two. I like the way these characters feel. There's a comfort there that makes the book quite enjoyable, and the art is fantastic. Number three is X-Men number two. I want to rank this lower just because there wasn't much to the book, but I like the dialogue. I know you thought it was a little forced and silly, the art and what it could be building to with the mysteries of Apocalypse such as they are. And yeah, I think X-Men number two, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, Cyclops, Kid Cable, and uh, I guess we're calling her Prestige now, Rachel, on the other island where I said that Cyclops was coming across like the goofy sitcom dad. So yeah, I I wasn't. (laughs) I thought it was a little corny, the dialogue. Um, Jeremiah's fourth book of the number twos is Marauders number two. He says... I felt like they're trying to create excitement and tension between the White Queen and the Black King with the whole Red Queen mystery when we all knew what was going to happen because it was telegraphed so much earlier. It was just a miss. I don't mind the stuff with Kate Pride. That, that for me, is where the drama is. Why is she behaving the way she is? I'm looking forward to see where that goes. And uh, we have, uh, we've talked about Kitty, and I think Maraud is number two, and I th- I'm probably making this revelation for the hundredth time. That was the book where I was kind of just like over this new take on Kitty. I was just like, oh, this is too much. And I think I even bumped it down to second or third place for the week because I just couldn't stand how annoying Kitty was. But then uh, Damien had brought up that every time we see Kitty drunk, it's she's like she's dumping the, the, the liquor. She's like trying to look the part rather than actually doing it. So that's going to be interesting to follow up on You know, when, when she returns. And hopefully we'll start getting some answers on, you know, why she's been, you know, begotten here. Why she's just not allowed to cross through these Krakoan gateways. Uh, Hopefully we get some answers pretty soon. I haven't heard anything, but then again, I haven't been looking for anything. So hopefully, (laughs) hopefully it'll be a nice surprise. Jeremiah's fifth book of the number twos is Fallen Angels. He says, I'm putting this above Excalibur just because I was not as confused as I was last issue. This one was a little more coherent. Still don't love it, though. And his worst book of the number twos is, of course, Excalibur. He says, there just isn't a lot here to get my engines running. The art is top-notch, though. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I don't remember. I'm pretty sure I had it where Excalibur was my fifth book and Fallen Angels was my sixth. So very, very close there. Jeremiah wraps up with Still like the overall story and want to keep reading I love the show and hearing all the feedback And your thoughts as you go through them in each episode Well thank you so much For uh, being on this ride with us here Um, This has been This is a lot of fun (laughs) This is a lot of fun to do and share our ideas And I love the fact that we're At all different stages in the reading here Because it gives the show More of an evergreen feel right I mean we could talk about things going back to the very Very beginning or up till today and even with a little bit of hinting to the future here so you never know what we're going to be talking about here it keeps me on my toes because i gotta remember (laughs) all the you know 60 or so hours that i've spoken into this microphone about this stuff but uh i think it's also good for anybody who's popping in or just be bopping through the episodes here or has a particular issue of the dawn of x run that they want to hear someone talk about so i think that's a lot of fun 
And I, I appreciate everyone out there for being a part of it. Speaking of which, my good pal Joe Crawford is uh, trying to get back into the X-Books, and he had uh, reached out the other day to ask, you know, which which of these series is to really glom on to? Which, which are the ones that are, like, must-reading? And I gave him a few suggestions, you know, the entirety of Hox Pox, of course, um, X-Force number one for the big deal with Xavier, uh, X-Men number one, six, and seven, which I think are the, the strongest of that, and all of Marauders and the space issues for New Mutants. So, and I'm pretty sure he's going to be picking up the anthologies or maybe following along via Marvel Unlimited, which is another fantastic option. But he has some thoughts on uh, Marauders number one. He wrote in and said, Read Marauders number one this morning, and Jerry Duggan is probably my favorite Marvel writer right now. I love his Savage Avengers. I listened to the X-Men number one episode yesterday, and I love the format. There's something creepy definitely below the surface, as Hickman is wont to do. And yeah, Jerry Duggan is killing it. He is killing it right now. Um, Even though the last issue of Marauders probably wasn't my favorite, it's still the most... um, Consistently solid book of this uh, of this entire line, and he made Kid Cable work. You know, the Kid Cable issue. I was expecting to just hate it, and here we were having a really really good time with it. Jerry Duggan is definitely among the the top tier of Marvel writers right now. Hundred percent. I haven't read Savage Avengers, but with me and Avengers, it's all or nothing, and I just don't have the the mental <laughs> the mental energy to dive in on. How many Avengers ongoings are there now? Like 18, 20? Or maybe there's only two or three now, but I, I don't know. It's still too much stuff for me to catch up on. And uh, yes, the summer house scene in X-Men number one, there is definitely, you know, no pun intended, there's something sinister there. And uh, it creeps me out just to think about it, and I'm looking forward to seeing a little bit of the uh, veneer start to crack uh, in, in some coming uh, chapters and installments. But... I really appreciate that you're going to be on this ride with us, Joe. I'm so happy to hear that you're going to be getting back with the X-Men and uh, look forward to hearing more of your thoughts as you work your way through here. It's a really good time, and I'm so happy to have you with us for this uh, for this reading experience. But uh, that's where we'll leave it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so via Ace Comics on Twitter or weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us about whatever you want on 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. So, one more giant thank you for everyone spending their time with me today, uh, and until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Searching for the real thing Living like
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 92 of X Lapsed, where, uh, for the moment, we are no longer on the path to X of Tens. Uh, I don't know how they're labeling some of these, and not others, but uh, I guess we'll just go with what they give us. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Excalibur number f- uh, Volume 4, number 11. It's had an October 2020 cover date. Stories called Blood of the Changeling, written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors Eric Arshinaga, letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X Hickman, edits Bisa White Zabolski, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale August 19th of 2020. And before we go on, this is uh, gonna be another one of those episodes where I got something going on in my ears, so everything I'm saying sounds very, very muffled here. I don't know if it's the mic, I don't know if it's my ears. There's something weird going on, so hopefully. I'll be able to keep my volume levels, well, level here and not uh, shout in your ears and not whisper either. So we'll hope for the best here. Let's open this one up. And we open in the woods of Otherworld, where we meet a pair of green priestesses. Now, if you're already confused, well, join the club. Now, they're talking about Shogo the Dragon and how he cries like a baby in need of his mother, because of course he does. He is a baby who would probably want to be with his mother. Next thing we see is Jubilee, who's been captured by these very same green priestesses, and she's, like, trapped inside a tree. I guess these green priestesses have arboreal powers. I don't know. Now, the priestesses ask her if she'll settle down long enough for them to talk, to which Jubilee paths a whole bunch with her fireworks, which pretty much tells them everything they need to know. Then Excalibur shows up, and we get a single splash page depicting a battle between the green priestesses and our mutant heroes before hopping to an info page. Now we're in Otherworld, of course, and Opal Luna Saturnine has two different kinds of priestesses. We got priestesses of the white and priestesses of the green. And there are some differences between the two, but... I tell you what, I tried getting through this page like a half dozen times, and my eyes glazed over each and every time here. Let's just say they're different. Uh, single page spread of credits here, then a roll call. We'll be focusing on Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Apocalypse, and Betsy Britton. So we return to comics with Betsy chatting up Jubilee in a tree. I guess the battle is just over? Whatever. Uh, Now, she assures Jubilee that Shogo is okay and won't be harmed any further. Jubilee, eh, she ain't so sure. She wants these priestesses dead. And I know it's been a while, but last issue, some of Saturnine's priestesses shot Shogo down, and these were the white priestesses. Finally, the Greens decide that Jubilee might not be so much of a threat, and so they release her from her tree jail. It looks like we're on Endor or something. We got, like, tree houses and all that kind of stuff. And we see Shogo laid out on the ground, and he's really not in a good way. Now, Betsy comments that she'd asked Jubilee if she wanted to take Shogo back to Krakoa for healing. But here's the thing. Shogo the dragon's wound is bigger than Shogo the baby's entire body. 
So they're kind of concerned here, because if they take him through the gateway and he turns back into a baby, the poor thing might just fall apart or just die out the other end. The team decides to bide their time for a bit, and they're just going to remain here in the green while they plan their next moves. Betsy suggests that, you know, maybe Excalibur just stay here, hang ten, and she will head over to the Citadel all by her lonesome, which is an idea that Rogue ain't too keen on. We jump to that night, where the rest of the team is asleep, Richter begins to stir. He wanders around the woods a bit until he comes across a crystal. Now, he's beckoned to it as a druid by a pair of antlered priestesses. He reaches out and touches it, which somehow puts him in telepathic communication with A. Now, A is fairly insistent that Excalibur get back on task, get to the citadel, and plant that gateway seed. Richter tries to explain the current situation, you know, Shogo getting shot and all. He ain't too keen on it, and he decides that maybe to inspire Richter, he will share a story with him. And I tell you what, it's going to feature some folks that I never thought we'd ever hear from again. Apocalypse tells Richter of his first coven, circa 12th century CB. I'm not sure what CB stands for other than Sobolski. I do know folks that don't care to use AD now, use CE for common era. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. Whatever the case, Apocalypse's old coven is the Externals. You remember them? Probably not. This is like this is like year one X-Force stuff. Very, very weird. Very, very uh, confusing. And one of those concepts that I thought would never be revisited because it was just so damn inconvenient and confusing the first time around. Anyway, we got Saline, Nicodemus, Friggin' Cruel, Saul, and Kandra. I mean, like I said, we're pulling things out of Liefeld era X-Force. Anyway, Apocalypse talks about how one of them, Kandra, had a plan to extract her own life energy and place it into a stone. Because why wouldn't one want to do that? So Apocalypse and the gang help her with this, and it taught him something about rebirth and the power of a coven over that of the individual. I'm not sure why he feels like this is a story to be told here. And maybe I'm just dense, but I'm not exactly sure what Richter is supposed to glean from any of this. But whatever the case, it seems to have done the trick. Very, very bizarre. We jump to the next morning where Richter informs the team that they, you know, they got to get a move on to the Citadel. After a bit of negotiations, Jubilee will remain in Endor with Shogo. There was some conversation from Betsy to the Green Priestesses talking about how King Jamie doesn't really doesn't really seem to be concerning himself with, like, war. And uh, the Green Priestesses are like, well, you don't know everything that King Jamie's doing, so maybe, uh, maybe a shoe is about to drop, but uh, maybe a sandal, because this is not really a big shoe. Anyway, our team plans their journey, and Richter says since they can't fly there, and walking just walking up to the Citadel wouldn't be wise... They're just going to have to take the underground. Richter will dig their way there, and literally one panel later, Excalibur bursts out of the ground at the foot of the Citadel. And they're attacked pretty much straight away. Now, Richter asks for the gateway seed so he could, quote, get it started. He then causes it to grow some roots, which I didn't realize fell under his powers. Uh, though perhaps maybe he did some like super enrichment to the soil surrounding the seed? I don't know. I feel like maybe this is something we're not supposed to think too hard about. I, I mean, is he literally a druid now? 
is Marvel trying to like break Richter into the movies so they need to like make sure he's no longer a legitimate mutant? <laughs> he's just a druid now? Who knows? Now Richter does the thing and he hurls the root seed cl- the rooting seed closer to the citadel where it does in fact manage to grow into a gateway. Now, while the rest of the, the crew fights off some white priestesses, Richter steps through the portal in order to get back to A. Only he winds up falling through some red limbo for a bit until he and Apocalypse are able to, I don't know, mind merge, mind link, whatever they did. Uh, I guess everything's, you know, good. We jump back to the Citadel, and Betsy and Saturnine are having themselves a chat. I'm not sure how the battle ended. Which makes us two for two with this uh, wonky priestess fights just stopping rather than ending in this issue. We had the green priestesses, just the battle was a splash page. It's very similar here with the white priestesses. We don't know how they ended. Saturnine tells Betsy that she liked Brian better as Captain Britain, to which Betsy says, more or less, too bad. That's the big exchange we've been building toward here? All right, okay. From here, we jump right to our Dawn of X reading order, and then our next issue blurb in Krakoan that we've been wasting a page on ever since the start of this thing, which may make you think we're done. But we're not. It looks like we got us a post credit scene. Hey, it's just like the movies that I hear so much about. This scene kicks off with Rogue and Gambit being, you know, kicked out of Saturnine's quarters or throne room or wherever the hell it is that she hangs out, so that she and Betsy can talk in private. Rogue guides Gambit over to Saturnine's closet so he could steal a bunch of stuff. Eh? I mean, is this supposed to be funny? Is it going somewhere? Whatever the case, we actually wrap up the issue with Gambit looting a closet, finding a deck of cards and a shiny red amulet, and... that's it. That is Excalibur number 11. Uh, Next episode, we will be talking about Wolverine number 4, so, uh... Vampires... Yay. Uh, But before we do that, let's talk about this wildly disjointed issue. Um, I gotta say, this felt like just a bunch of incomplete scenes jammed together. Like, none of them actually led to a conclusive beat. Two whole battles with the priestesses that just stopped. It's like, are those pages in another book? Did they fall out of my copy? I mean, it's, it's a strangely clean stop as well. Like, you turn the page and we're on to the next thing, without wrapping up what came before. Very, very bizarre, very unfinished feeling. Uh, Now, Apocalypse's story about the externals also just seemed to stop. And, again, I might be dense, but I'm struggling to realize exactly what the point of it was. Though this might just be one of those, like, things where this would make a whole lot more sense if I was reading it in trade paperback format sort of thing, which, hey, I mean, that's great for people who are doing that. But what about the rest of us, right? And I mean, even the anthology, the Dawn of X anthology books, you're just getting a single issue of Excalibur in there. What are you even building to? Very, very bizarre. Now, the ending scene with Rogue and Gambit, just like the rest of the book, very disjointed. It almost feels like it was part of a different book altogether. It's so very strange here, and it's it like almost reminds me, while it's you know fresh in my mind here, during Mary X last week, we took a look at the final issue from Chris Claremont's return, uh, you know, 2001-ish. And he had a bunch of things he needed to fit in, and he did it, damn it. <laughs> he, it didn't matter how awkward it felt, how weirdly it read. He was going to jam everything in there that he could, because he had to. 
Is that what we're getting here? I mean, I can't say for sure, but it sure feels like it. We're just cramming and rushing here, and uh, they really could have paced this better. Uh, it just wasn't. It just wasn't a satisfying read. It did look nice. I'll give it that all day long. And you know what? The story itself isn't a bad one. I thought the dialogue was really good as well. My main issue here is the pacing. And it's like we're devoting too much paginal real estate to things that may not need it, while at the same time we're awkwardly truncating scenes that might be better off with just a little bit more room to breathe. So that is Excalibur number 11. Next issue of Excalibur is one of the X of Ten's prelude chapters, not even the path to. This is like a prelude, an official one. So hopefully business will pick up by then. But that's all I got to say about the issue. Let's hop into the mailbag. We're going to kick it off with Damien, who finished Empire colon X-Men here. So we're going to get his final thoughts on this fourth issue. He says, well, that was the best issue of the series, which may be damning with faint praise. As you said, the scene between the two Explody Boys was the best part of the issue. Explody Boy feels like an attempt to come up with a superhero name that a teenager would pick. Sadly, it doesn't really work and ends up reflecting Bob Haney's use of teenage slang in those old Teen Titans issues. It's painful. Yeah, totally. Um, very good comparison there. I, I, it, it does feel like, you know, I would talk about um, Chris Claremont using... Uh, trying to use slang of the day or actually trying to use slang of yesterday because he wasn't on top of what was hip, I guess, for a lack of a better term. I, I don't think I've ever used the word hip in real life, but uh, here we are. He would use things from like a generation past because he thought that was still relevant. Like when I look at something like Explodey Boy, it reminds me of those that boom of movies we had probably mid to late 2000s where they were like big budget movies but they were trying to make it look like indie so they'd use like that bubble lettering and it would look like something you drew on your trapper keeper right that's kind of what this feels like because it's kind of ironic it's kind of silly and it's it feels it feels horribly dated unless i'm just not hip and this is exactly what the uh the youth of the day would really really dig in which case i'm i, I can see it i'm I'm out of touch, but it's uh, it felt instantly dated to me and just very, very cringy. Perhaps not as cringy as uh, Chris Claremont having a character in Sovereign 7 tell Lois Lane to, quote, strike a pose, which came out in, like, uh, probably 1997, ref- you know, referencing a Madonna song from quite a bit before that, but uh, silliness. Um, Damien continues, Jonathan Hickman is not funny. He needs telling. The Madrox scene doesn't work as humor, and it doesn't work as drama. It's really distasteful. And I'm so happy to hear you say that, because, um... I mean, we've talked about the humor in these books and how they're... How it doesn't always land. But, uh... And I've talked about this before, but... Anytime I make a complaint about... Basically anything Jonathan Hickman does, there's a contingent that tells me that I just don't get it. And, and, you know, they might be right. Like, maybe Explody Boy and Jamie Madrox offering up dupe body parts to be eaten by zombies is the height of hilarity. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I just don't get it. But that's what I keep hearing from folks. I keep hearing, like, oh, this is just Hickman style. You either get it or you don't. Well, I don't. <laughs> and uh, I don't find it funny. 
think he's a good writer. I just don't think he's a very funny writer. Uh, I think he's trying too hard to be funny. Um, and again, I'm I'm completely projecting here. I've never met the man. I probably never will. But uh, it just feels like very try-hard sort of stuff here. Jamie Madrox, a guy who back in the early 90s couldn't reabsorb a dupe and it sent him spiraling into depression, you know, because he lost one. And here we are where he's just stacking, he's stacking arms for zombies to eat so he can get away. Really bad. It's not funny. It's not scary. It's not anything. It's just, it's crap. Uh, Damien wraps up with, in conclusion, I will never read this series again, but I think you're slightly unfair to it saying it's worse than Fallen Angels. (laughs) It's a close one. It's a close one, but gun to my head, if I have to read one of these over again, it's Fallen Angels, because at least it's quick. Um, (laughs) and, uh, And I mean, it's, I can make fun of that, where Empire is just brutal. It is brutal. I will. I will never take these out of the packs again. Out of the uh, out of the poly bags, they are sealed for life. I could stitch these things shut because they're never coming out again. Fallen Angels. It's not likely I'll ever read it again. But like I said, gun to my head, if I had to pick one, I'm reading Fallen Angels twice. Uh, but thank you so much for uh, for sharing your thoughts there, Damien, and thank you for keeping up with Empire X Men. I know it's. I know it wasn't a pleasant read, and I'm sure it wasn't a completely pleasant listen as well. So I thank you so, so much. Now next, we have, uh, we have a message from Mark, Green Lantern HG, talking about Giant Size Phantom X. He says, Great episode, Chris. This character I know nothing about. This came way after I stopped reading X Anything, and talking to a friend, he said the same thing you said. He told me to, quote, Imagine Gambit, but with different powers and a mask. I love hearing that because, and I mentioned this to Mark uh, on Twitter, that I thought that I might have to give up my, my Grant Morrison fan club card, you know, for com- daring to compare uh, one of his genius characters to Gambit, who, you know, a lot of us more enlightened uh, comics uh, enthusiasts would uh, discount as just a, a relic of the 90s who doesn't ever need to be seen again. Uh so I was worried that people might take me to task for that. But, I mean, there are a lot of similarities between the two. It's hard to stop seeing them once you start. So I want to thank you so, so much for writing in about that and for uh, keeping up with uh, the show. It uh, really, really means a lot to me. Next, uh, Evan Bevins shares a story about a story that I told back in X-Lapsed episode 63. Now, Evan says, I listened to the episode Excalibur 8, X-Lab 63, I believe, where you talked about your comics college class and the guest lecturers, and I wanted to share my own, quote, academic comic experience. Though I took sports and film and science fiction literature, I never got a full-on comics-focused course, but there was an inexplicable entry on comics in my journalism ethics textbook. It talked about the state of comics at the time it was written, which was the mid to late 90s based on perusing a grocery or drugstore spinner rack. I believe one of the, quote, concerns it cited was something like Lady Death or Evil Ernie, some title I didn't know much about and wasn't interested in learning. But it continued to question the ever-rising stakes and threats that resulted in the approach of Onslaught, and I agree that there could be a problem with continuing to raise the threat level to absurd, absurd heights, but if this writer was morally concerned about Onslaught, I hope he or she never perused Irredeemable or The Boys. 
and the arrival of the of a new team, the Justice League of America, which referenced Morrison's JLA number one, quote, just to prove that jingoism is alive and well. I did ma- I did try to make the point in class that the most pertinent connection this class this had to the class was that clearly the writer had not done enough or any research to accurately explore the topic about which they were writing. The idea of attaching America to a team's name had been explored numerous times before that, including when the Justice League title shifted to International and when they introduced Justice League Europe. The inclusion of the name was, as I understood it, a legacy from the JSA, which was born from World War II patriotism. Of course, there are numerous things about that era that didn't age well, but that wasn't one of them. I believe I asked for equal time to rebut, but was sadly turned down by the professor. Now, first, I want to thank Evan so much for uh, for writing in about this. Uh, for folks who don't remember this episode or who are just popping around the uh, the feed here, I discussed a com- a what was it a Western literature class I was in with a focus on comic books that I needed as a humanities course while still in community college, and the discussion that we had uh, we had guest lecturers who told us they were PhDs about 7,000 times in a half-hour talk. Um, And what they did was they talked about representation in comics, among other things, of course. What they really wanted to do was um, kind of... They wanted to present comics as being racially ignorant. Um, But in doing so, they didn't take the time to... Like Evan said, they didn't do much, if any, research on creators, on the state of the industry for the books they were citing the risks involved in presenting anything different than, you know, what the people were reading at the time, and nothing about the actual attempts at diversifying the business both on the page and off, um, because, I mean, at the end of the day, they had a narrative. They had a narrative they wanted to present, and uh, on the face of it, I mean, when you say things, when you make blanket statements about a very niche subject like comics or any hobby, really, the layman in the crowd, or as John Byrne would call them, the civilian, you know, the people who don't know comics inside or out, they're going to just accept it. They're going to be like, oh, well, that makes sense, right? You know, oh, Justice League of America? Yeah, Jingo is, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because they don't know anything about the history or the industry or anything like that. But when you put someone like us in a room with these folks... It doesn't uh, it doesn't pass muster, but unfortunately, there's just not a whole hell of a lot you can do. You know, you're not going to say anything that's going to make them change their outlook. They're certainly not going to start researching. <laughs> if they haven't already, they're not going to start. So it's uh, they got their story and they're sticking to it. So, eh, it just it stinks. But uh, I really love hearing uh, Evans uh, Evans' experience because it's. I'm starting to think that this might be a uh, a common experience for folks who who you know had the pleasure and pain of hearing a little bit about you know their favorite hobby in an academic environment. Now we're going to wrap up with a message from Andrew Franklin, who's talking about Cable Number Two. He says these Wave Two books keep on surprising me with how much I enjoy them. Well, except for Wolverine, and yeah. <laughs> I agree. Uh, He continues, Cable is a title I had no interest in. I have little interest in OG Cable solo series, much less a Teen Cable. I thought Teen Cable was a dumb idea, and his depiction in the Dawn of X titles wasn't exactly changing my mind, but this book is fun. 
I look forward to seeing where this goes. I know space stuff isn't your cup of tea, but I like the inclusion of the ROM stuff. It shouldn't work, but somehow this book does. I hope the next few issues just ramp up the crazy heavy metalness. And yeah, I like I said, I'm not big on ROM. I've got a full run of ROM that I found in a quarter bin and uh, never read it. I've tried reading it. I uh, didn't try too hard. Uh, you know, I, honestly, I didn't. I could have tried harder, but I didn't really try too hard. But what I did see, I, I really wasn't too keen on. Uh, that said, I'm a I'm a sucker for lore, so I love the idea of tying these things together. Just like uh, you know, when they introduced like a Deathlock into uh, Uncanny X Force. I could care less about Deathlock, but I love the the use, just the the lore, the interconnectivity of things. I like that sort of thing. And I like it here. And like you said, this shouldn't work, but it does. It really, really shouldn't work because it's just... It's quite insane, right? I mean, everything that we're seeing in this book is very, very crazy. Who would ever think that a a teenage cable would uh, be able to maintain a series or maintain interest to, uh, in a solo adventure I didn't think so I mean, like you said The old Cable could barely do that This teen Cable I, I wasn't happy that he was even a thing that existed And here we are Really, really enjoying the run So, really, really digging it And I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts as well uh, Andrew does wrap up with Until the dire wraiths return in Empire 2 The returning Make mine X lapsed I will always read the Make Mine X Lapsed. I love them. I love them. Thank you so much for that. Um, but that is where we will leave it for today. If anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so a couple of different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or at Gmail at 90sXmen at gmail.com. Like I mentioned last episode, I lost access to Weird Comics History at gmail.com, which sucks for a lot of reasons and is literally something I'm losing sleep over. So, uh,. Not happy about that. Hopefully, I'll be able to get back in there soon. But for now, 90sXmen at gmail.com is the contact address for this program. Uh, you could uh, check out blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We've also got xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could talk about all sorts of stuff on Facebook. If Facebook is a thing that you do, find us at 90sXmen. And you can listen to the entire audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You know, I've done those plugs 92 times now, and I still stumble through them. I should just tape something and and put it there, but uh, I figure that's probably something a smart person would do. But I'll just keep stumbling through as we we continue. But uh, I think that'll do it. I want to thank everyone so, so much for sharing their time with me and uh, for sharing their thoughts as well. Uh, next time out, it is Wolverine number four. Hopefully, we'll be pleasantly surprised by that one, but I'm not holding my breath. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank you all again, and as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 106 of X Lapsed, where we're uh, kind of off the path to Exoswords, and we're uh, into one of the prelude issues here. Not to say we're not going to go back on the path, because I think we might, but this is a prelude issue. So we get two of these, so this is kind of like the first half of part zero to the massive crossover event that we'll be spending... Well, an entire month on. <laughs> very, 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 very soon. Uh, let's start this one. This is Excalibur, uh, by the way. Uh, we're going to talk about the cover here because I knew that the cover featured Saturnine playing chess and then someone playing chess with her. But every time I looked at it, I could have sworn it was Emma Frost. Uh, they look too damn similar. Um, they uh, There's really not a whole lot to tell them apart by if you look at them quickly. So... This entire time we're getting to this issue, I'm like, ah, well, Emma's going to be part of it. And no, of course not. This is Saturnine. And uh, if you're not familiar with the cover image, it is Saturnine playing chess with all of our Excalibur characters on the board. But then there's a giant apocalyptic hand over her head as though it's going to play her as a piece as well. Let's get into it. This is Excalibur, Volume 4, Number 12. Had a November 2020 cover date. The story is called Verse 12, The Beginning. Written by Teeny Howard, with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Arshinaiga. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa white Sabolski. Cover price, $4, and went on sale September 16th of 2020. Now, we are right away with the roll call here. We don't get a cold open, so let's get into who we're going to be focused on today. We've got Apocalypse, Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Betsy Britton, and Saturnine. Then, our double-page spread of creds, which welcomes us to the beginning of our mass crossover event. And then we kick off the comics bit with, uh, well, some externals. Um, they were at the Eternal Caldara at Krakoa. And there, he is met by his original Covenites, the externals. And yeah, they're still pretty boring. Now, they yammer on a bit about their connection and their communion, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on. And uh, also the fact that uh, their special gift of resurrectability, well, it ain't so special anymore, you know, considering that every mutant can do it now. The externals take this as them being referred to as obsolete, when I think the word all Saul was actually looking for was redundant. Now, Apocalypse assures them that this isn't the case at all, as the externals were still his, still first, right, and therefore still important. Let's meet our external High Lords with a roll call of their own. We've got Apocalypse again. Cruel, Nicodemus, Kandra, Selene, Friggin' Gideon, Saul, and Absalom. On this info page, because this is an info page, we see a list of two external gifts. Resurrection, which is self-explanatory, and Communion. Which is to say that anywhere these folks are, they can find each other. And they can come back together. Get back to comics here, and we are back with Richter still emerging through that otherworldly Krakoan gateway that we saw him go through last issue. 
Now he's fallen, he's fallen, he's fallen, he's scratching, he's flailing, let's say. Until he emerges right where all the externals are, thanks to A's guidance. Now upon his arrival, the High Lords proclaim that Richter is not a High Lord. He's not an external. To which Apocalypse seems to change the subject, I think. And he suggests that the externals do their duty, which is to give up their ancient bones to power the Krakoan gateway to Saturnine Citadel. And if they ag- don't agree with this, he'll kill them? I feel like I'm missing something here. Now, Richter, he's just as confused as I am. He informs him, and us, that the externals must die in order to power both Richter and that gateway. And again, I feel like I'm missing something. Like, my reading comprehension is sometimes quite lacking, but eh, I don't know. This is all going somewhere, though. It's just uh, taken a while. A then calls Celine, Richter, and Gideon to his side, which tells us that the rest are probably going to be serving as the sacrificial lambs to power this gateway. Oh, Absalom will also wind up making it. Saul manifests into a giant dragon, or just manifests a giant dragon? I don't know. We, we get several pages of a dragon, is what I'm trying to say here. Blowing fire, snorting, being angry. Then, he says our ritual's about to begin. And I'm really, really sorry if this comes across as confusing, but to little old me, it, it kind of is. I mean, not even an info page can help us, because... Well, our next info page is one of those pages out of A's grimoire, which make no sense to begin with. You know, I'm, now more than ever, it makes no sense. Let's get back to comics here. And Nicodemus, Saul, Cruel, and Kandra are dead. Their essences, their bones, their souls, or whatever the hell it is, they turn to red crystal. Except for Kandra, who is empty and has been for a while. So... Nicodemus, Saul, and Cruel, they've got these giant red crystals just around them, right? Around their corpses here. Kandra doesn't have any of that. And I mean, we did see them turn her essence, or whatever it was, into that red gemstone just last issue in the flashback, right? So this shouldn't be all that big a surprise to Apocalypse, should it? Eh, but it is anyway. I, I know I asked this a lot when we read reading Excalibur, but did I miss an issue? I really feel like I did. Okay, let's shift scenes over to Otherworld, where we left Rogue and Gambit, who were rifling through Saturnine's closet. They found that red gemstone, which I totally didn't realize was Kandra's soul, essence, bones, whatever the hell it was last issue, which certainly speaks to my muddled reading comprehension, doesn't it? Anyway, here we are, in the Citadel, with Gambit and Rogue. And Kandra, who is now haunting Gambit, since he's carrying around her soul or whatever. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this sort of connection between the two of them. This one goes way back to, to Gambit's earliest series. Now, Gambit chats up Kandra, who's while walking slightly behind Rogue, who somehow doesn't hear all that much from this somewhat contentious discussion he's having with a spirit. Let's head over a few rooms and meet back up with Betsy and Opal Luna Saturnine here. Now, Saturnine laments that Betsy's all that remains of the Captain Britain Corps and talks about how Betsy's beautiful blonde British brother Brian was so much better in the role. They then go up an elevator and enter a room where we see those odd current-year Excalibur-themed Captain Britons all shacked up in crystal. Now, this is that rogue, Richter, Gambit, and Jubilee versions of Captain Britain here, where they're all, you know, union-jacked up. And I figure if this was a Star Wars comic, these would already have action figures out, you know. Now, Saturnine refers to these 
various disparate captains as abominations. And they talk a little bit more about how Betsy is a mutant Captain Britain and how that doesn't exactly ease any of Saturnine's concerns because, in case you didn't know this, people tend to hate mutants. I mean, we don't go more than a handful of pages in these books without that reminder, but here it is again. Let's jump back to Krakoa. Now, A.E. is trying to figure out his next step, and even consider sacrificing himself, again, in order to power this gateway. Back to the Citadel, there's an alarm sounding. And in fairness, Gambit did steal a great big gemstone out of Saturnine's closet, so yeah, alarms might sound. Now, Kandra asked that Gambit turn her essence over to Saturnine, as it would save her from Apocalypse. And if you recall, Gambit is not keen on doing anything that might help Apocalypse after all the stuff that went down with Rogue during the first arc of this volume. Saturnine then calls for her priestesses to destroy the Krakoan Gate, which Betsy ain't keen on at all. He calls out to her, claiming that he feels Kandra's soul is nearby her. And she figures out that the big old gem that Gambit stole is Kandra's soul, and he asks for him to toss it through the gateway to Apocalypse. And after a little bit of internal struggle, Gambit does just that. We wrap up with the powered gateway to the Starlight Citadel, and a lot less optimism from your humble host as it pertains to our upcoming X of Ten's month of reviews. But that's where we leave it. Next episode, we finally wrap up the Giant Size books with Giant Size X-Men colon Storm number one. So let's talk about Excalibur. Let's talk about Excalibur. Do you all like this issue? I didn't. <laughs> I, I really just didn't understand it. Um, now, do I attribute much of this issue to my inability to follow a simple story, or do I attribute it to the nebulous otherworld effect? I know I would like to just blame the story for being nonsensical and all over the place, but for that to be true, this would have had to have been written in English, run through Google Translate into several different languages, and then back again. And I really don't think that was the case. So this was probably just a situation in which I didn't get it. And I mean, it's almost, a, it's almost a meme at this point, but I feel like every time we cover an issue of Excalibur on the show, I mention that I can't shake the feeling that we're missing something. Or, or more like I'm missing something. I don't want to speak for everybody. I feel like I'm missing maybe context, story, pages, I don't know. Maybe I just have a weird intentional blind spot to all this other world stuff where I, I subconsciously purge bits and pieces of this from my brain. I don't know. I don't know, it's just, uh, I'm always feeling like I'm like I'm two steps behind where this book needs me to be in order to fully appreciate it. And I mean, maybe that's on purpose, or maybe I'm just an idiot. That's always a possibility. It's a probability, as a matter of fact. I read this issue twice, and I still just, like, I don't get where we're, what we're doing here. I don't know where... I don't know how we got to where we're at in a lot of cases, and I don't know what the point of a lot of things are here. I mean, let's talk about some of the things we got here. We introduced the external element to this to this story just last issue, and here we are killing off half of them. It feels kind of strange. Um, we also get an entire scene last issue where Kandra has her soul placed into a gem with the help of all of the externals, and here... He is surprised to find out that she no longer has a soul? I mean, did I miss something? Was there something here that was plainly obvious that I just maybe glossed over? 
I mean, I must have, right? I mean, if there's anybody listening who would like to set me straight, please, please do. Just be gentle, because, you know, this book is making me feel dumb enough as it is. Um, it's still beautiful. It's still really, really nice to look at. But as far as the story goes, I feel like we're getting just a mishmash of cool scenes without anything to bridge them together. You know, it's like, I really want to do this scene where Gambit steals this gem, but it's just there. It just it doesn't feel organic. Maybe a little convenient, you know. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm ill-equipped to discuss this issue, and I apologize for doing it uh, perhaps a grand disservice in trying. But uh, I'm confused. Uh, I'm not optimistic for what's to come. I My saving grace here is that everything in our 22-23 part crossover that's coming will have to be in some semblance of order, right? So everything will lead to the next chapter, and hopefully... Every time I get to an Excalibur chapter, I won't be rifling through my long boxes to make sure I didn't miss something. That would be a delight, but uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, beautiful book. A lot of interesting bits in this, but the way it was presented was uh, maybe just a little too over your humble host's head, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's where we'll leave it today. Um, now that was Excalibur number 12 Let's uh, hop into the mailbag before we cut out of here today We're going to start with Damien Who's talking about Hellions number 3 He says You're right to say that this issue really does make villainy Sound like a logical response from Maddie When you consider what she's been through Turns out editorial fiat Is the biggest villain Now Hellions, uh, that first arc there Was such a uh, Such an interesting study For a character like Madeline Pryor Who uh and I mean, I've said this pretty much every episode since we've covered it. Um, she's acting the way she is um, in order to leave a mark, in order to make it known that she existed. And uh, it's something that really speaks to me. I like it a lot. Now, Damien continues, Generally speaking, I continue to enjoy Hellions. I find it weird that I don't get upset by the ultraviolence in Hellions, but it often annoys me in X-Force and Wolverine. I think the difference is tone. Hellions has a very consistent voice where X-Force is all over the place, veering from try-hard comedy to attempts at geopolitics. Yes, <laughs> I agree 100%. I feel like with Hellions, and I, I, I loathe to use the Suicide Squad comparison, because, uh, I mean, to me, Suicide Squad is not really a slapsticky book. I, I don't know what the movie was like. I'm assuming it was a little bit more over the top than what we'd usually get from the comic. But... I, I hate to compare it to that, but I feel like tonally there might be uh, some parallels, some similarities here to where when we see over-the-top violence, it, it kind of works. Whereas X-Force, like you said, it, it doesn't have an identity. I mean, in any issue of X-Force, we could jump from laughing at the fact that Quentin Quire died again to body horror to CIA talk to rounding up Russian mutants. I mean, it, it it's all over the place. It is all over the place. And Wolverine, I mean, is in the similar boat there. So yeah, Hellions, it really just works for it. Uh, Damien continues, I know that nostalgia is a huge part of my affection for this book. Using characters from the Australian era puts it right in my sweet spot, but that's not the whole reason, as I'm also beginning to understand the point of Quinan. 
In fact, it amazes me that the second wave of Dawn of X has managed to get me to care about characters from Fallen Angels. Both Kid Cable and Psylocke have been revitalized. It's miracle far more impressive than the Resurrection Protocols. And no doubt, no doubt, I think that's where a lot of my trepidation for uh, Wave 2 in general came from, was the fact that Fallen Angels was just such a dud. And uh, seeing Psylocke uh, Quanan on the covers of Hellions made me worry that we were going to get more, you know, purple prose and uh, butterfly talk and this isn't my body talk, you know. I, I was really worried that it was going to be more of the same. And then we have Kid Cable who, boy, he's <laughs> they're killing it in that book. And I mean, let's take it a step further here. X-23 is currently in the vault, you know, dressed as Kid Wolverine again. So Fallen Angels, why in the hell did that exist? Did it exist? Did we dream it? <laughs> is that, I mean, it, it hurt us enough, so it, uh, so it, we know it exists, just like Madeline Pryor, right? It hurt us, so it existed. Uh, it just feels such a, like, such a weird thing where I, I wonder if it's even going to get a mention again. I wonder if halfway through that series, because it was never announced as a limited series, right? I think we were supposed to believe it was going to be an ongoing, just like the rest, the other five uh, launch titles for Dawn of X. When uh, when I ordered issue six from DCBS, it didn't say final issue. And then next month, when number seven didn't come out, I didn't. I was just like, oh, well, okay, we're skipping this month. And then the following month, when issue seven didn't come out again, it's like, oh, okay, I guess that's done now. So it really didn't make it seem like it was a done deal, at least to me from you know the periphery. But yes, Hellions is doing a... Actually, Wave 2 is doing a great job in revitalizing some of these characters that I never thought that I'd give half a damn about. But uh, they are... They're really doing well here. And now Damien wraps it up with, Anyway, until Arclight gets her own cooking show, make my next lapsed. And uh, yeah, I don't think I would want to watch that cooking show there. Uh, her... Uh, her appetite is for uh, is for flesh, so we don't want to see that. It, it's weird. That's one of the very few things on this planet that freaks me out is cannibals. Because uh, you know, I talk about getting lost in how the how the sausage is made, and that is certainly a situation where I do not want to know how the sausage is made, literally and figuratively. It just really, really gets under my skin. But uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts on uh, Hellions. Next up, we've got a two-parter from our friend Evan Bevins. First, he's going to talk about Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed. Now, he says, I finished up Resurrects Lapsed, which Alexa pronounces very well. I agree, the finale was a little underwhelming. For me, that was due in part to having the ending summed up in, from a different perspective in another title. Spoilers don't necessarily negate the enjoyment of an excellent story, but knowing where this one was headed stole a little bit of the thunder for me. A relatively minor quibble I had was Old Man Logan, back in issue 4, enjoying killing Madroxes. Isn't his, his whole raison d'etre that he accidentally killed the X-Men while under Mysterio's influence? I know he eventually popped the claws again and led to the horrendous finale, but still. It's kind of like Magic's broccoli genocide remark in Empire X-Men number 2. It may have seemed funny in the script, but it really didn't fit. And I agree, 100%. For folks who just listen to, uh, you know, X-Lapsed Classic and don't uh, don't veer into the Sunday specials, um, the second one we did was Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey. And as Evan is mentioning here, in the fourth issue, 
the X-Men are trying to find Jean Grey, and they uh, wind up in this otherworldly, elsewhere place, right? That's a, a an environment being curated by the Phoenix, basically, to keep Jean sequestered long enough for her to become the host for the, the Phoenix Force. Now, inside this little sequestered elsewhere are a bunch of dead mutants. So, among them, I guess Jamie Madrox was dead at this point. I don't know how he died, but he was dead at this point. And so, when the X-Men came in, they were attacked by a bunch of these then-dead mutants. And Old Man Logan, who was you know, still the Wolverine going at the, this point, took great glee in just slashing and <laughs> maiming as many Madroxes as possible while commenting, Oh, I've wanted to do this ever since I met the guy. Yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that at all. And Evan bringing up that Old Man Logan's whole gimmick was that he was manipulated or he killed a bunch of X-Men while under uh, Mysterio's influence. And he, so he shouldn't want to do things like that, right? I mean, our current Wolverine uh, wound up killing his entire X-Force team under the Pale Girl's uh, influence in the opening arc of the, Wolf the new Wolverine volume, so... I guess it's same as it ever was. But yeah, I thought that whole uh, killing the Madroxes was in pretty bad taste. And I mean, we're not really getting a whole lot of good use out of Jamie to begin with here, are we? Because even take it into our current books here. In Empire X-Men, he was making dupes just to send out to be eaten by zombies. Yeah, that sucks. It's, it's as Evan said here, it may have seemed funny in the script, but no. Uh, also, Jamie as a as a manual laborer, being the entire workforce for Krakoa in the Savage Land and elsewhere, it's a uh, and poor Jamie just ain't getting a ain't getting a fair shake anymore. So yes, we are in a hundred percent agreement that uh, that wasn't great, and uh, unfortunately, neither was the ending to Phoenix Resurrection. Here was a little underwhelming. Very very strong first three issues. Issue 4 started to show, show some seams, and then Issue 5 was basically Gene talking to a bird. So, that was that. But uh, also from Evan here, he's got a message for all of you listening along with this program. He says, For anyone who is using or thinking about using Hoopla, which is the free like digital library uh, application... Volume 2 of X-Men, which includes issues 7 through 11, and Marauders Volume 2, which includes issues 7 through 12, are on there now for free. Plus, if you want to read the main Empire story, the Empire trade is there for you. So big thanks to Evan for sharing that. If anybody would like to check out Hoopla, please do so. Uh, if you're on the fringes of reading this stuff, or if you just don't want to spend the money on it, and you don't have Marvel Unlimited... Hoopla is a great way to do it. I haven't, I haven't yet tried it myself because digital stuff ain't my thing. But if digital stuff's your thing, hey, it's right there. No reason not to give it a shot. So, Volume Two of X Men, Volume Two of Marauders, and the entire Megilla of Empire, whether we want that one or not. But thanks again, Evan. That's uh, really, really appreciated. It's nice to have someone with all the deets on the Hoopla. That's where we're going to leave it for today. Uh, if anybody would like to get a hold of me, you could do so very easily. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com or xlapsed.com. 
Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook about whatever you'd like to talk about. It's Our little group is called 90s X-Men. And you can listen to anything from the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That'll do it for today. I want to thank everyone for sharing your time with me. And uh, till next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.